All right. You want to bring it in? Or you want me to bring it in? I can or bring do, it in. Or do we want Marie Clawhammer to bring it in? All right. If Chris wants to bring it in, he's more than welcome. <laughs> and now it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Hiya, folks. Murray Clawhammer here. <laughs> Inserting myself into back to the bins. <laughs> and I'm here with everybody but Dr. Bill. And I'm actually Chris Honeywell with Scott Gardner. Hello! <laughs> and Paul Spataro. How are you? I got called in at the last minute. Last minute? Like last oh, minute? It wasn't last minute. We gave you plenty of time. Oh, I had you, a, you, you're I getting had a, soft. I had over 24 hours. <laughs> that's, that's much more than most of our guests have. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, mostly guess it's like, what are you doing right now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is it just mostly like Bill rolling out of bed and like just hitting the button and being like, ah? Yeah. Well, that's well, how he Bill. wound up on the show. It was for him. It was pretty much the bag over the head, getting the car, stupid scenario. Yeah. You know, that's how he wound <laughs> up on the show. He's lucky he had a kidney and wasn't in a, bu- in a bucket of ice. <laughs> I I go for the. For the yeah, I go for the more like subtle approach and just leave a car door open with a bottle of Mountain Dew in there. <laughs> Kick the See, door shut. I don't even I don't even go as far as as a car. I put a I put a crate with a stick <laughs> with a string attached to it and put some some more Mountain Dew in there, and then Bill crawls in like like a like a you know like a uh, squeamish little rabbit. He, he he inches forward slowly until he's under the box, yeah. and then I pull the string. I think he walks out of the house and he goes, I know this is a trap, but I... Oh, hey, Paul, before I forget, before I forget, speaking of rabbits, do you have (laughs) HBO Max by any chance? I apparently have access to it. I only found out today somebody was telling me about it because I thought it was something where you just had to pay right out to get it. Uh, But then I'm told if you have HBO in your house, you can sign up and just have it. So I have it available on my phone, but apparently the app for it is not on my smart TV. So I can watch it. I can watch HBO Max on my phone. That's a long answer to a short question. So we had the same issue because we just bought a new TV recently, and we had the same issue because um, it's a Roku TV. But there's a thing that you can. I'll, I'll talk to you later about this off off air. There's, to get there's a way to like to cast it from your phone to the TV, right? Yes. Yes, exactly, and that's what we did. And that particular casting device, I'm blanking on what the hell the name of it is. Chromecast? Yeah, Chromecast. Um, that works 
because I tried uh, uh, like I don't know how many different casting things before I got one that actually worked well, and the and the Chromecast wor- one works really well. But anyway, long story short, the reason that I ask you is back when we were prepping for our Looney Tunes episode, and I think even afterwards, I've bitched several times, you can't ever find the damn Looney Tunes. They're on HBO Max, and they have them listed by season, which is kind of weird because there's not really seasons of those. You know, they're by year, but they are, you know, they're grouped, so you can you can filter through, and man, I, it's awesome. I mean, it. I, I don't know for sure that they have everything, but it feels like they have everything. I mean, there's a ton of stuff in there for, you know, classic Looney Tunes. So I, I had the, the other day, I had for the entire day stuck in my head. Oh, carrots are divine. You get a dozen for a dime. It's, it's magic. <laughs> and then I would just walk around the rest of the day going, la da da dee 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 da 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 dee da 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 Magic. See, and everybody who gets it, you know you're you're cool hanging out with them. Yeah, anybody, nobody Anybody who it. doesn't doesn't get it, who cares? Nobody got it. And I got it from another cook at another job who used to just have it stuck in his head. And then there it went like an earworm and... Just every once in a while, every once in a while, my brain um, malfunctions. The, the several um, Looney Tunes, uh, CD, you know, albums that I have. You know, nobody's really got CDs anyway. On MP3 albums that I have, I know that's I know that song is on there. At least a piece of it. I, I'm not sure which one it is. There's there's well, one I, that I listen to on a regular basis. It's called like something like Looney Tunes Greatest Hits or something to that effect. And uh, there's one on there that's just, uh, there's a whole track that's just a medley, like little little snippets here and there of all the different songs that Bugs Bunny sang over the years in different cartoons. I know that one's in there. Where do they go in Mississippi when skies are drippy? <laughs> Ah, so anyway, uh, does anybody have anything before we uh, we dive into this one? I'm really looking forward to tonight, because not only do I think we have three really good-slash-fun books, but uh, I think good. we're going to inspire some really good conversation. Yeah, so we should probably did, hop right guys, into you it. You guys tossed me a really good book there, guys. <laughs> oh, you didn't guys. pick your book? No, I, I – I, well, it I got formatted as a Get Chris a – to read a comic so i felt that i shouldn't have can i should be i should be thrown into the dark with it i i i was given the option of picking it myself or so it is my own fault yeah but in, quite in frankly when i read it i thought it, i thought it fit you i thought okay i could see where chris <laughs> would pick this oh. book oh i think just from the conversations <laughs> that it would inspire yes i i thanked scott for i i got two pages in and i'm like oh my god what is this and then I got five more pages, and I'm like, Jesus, this gets that a lot worse. <laughs> that one's been rolling around in the back of my head for a while, because a, a while back I was – well, I still am, but I'm, I'm taking a hiatus while I read other stuff. But a while back I was on a complete read-through of Jim Aparo books, you know, basically anything drawn by Jim Aparo. I was just kind of reading through his, his history. And when I read that one, 
it just stuck with me as, oh my god, we have got to do this on bins because it's just a friggin' riot. Let's, so when let's you, say, but you, but you know what? Doesn't have any blame on this one. As no, weird no, as it is, as weird as it is, it's you know you, you read it and you just shake your head and you say, typical Bob Haney. Yes, yes, absolutely. But yeah. So why don't I, we do that one we, first? Because the, first, the way this fell out, we have two DCs and a Marvel. So why don't we start with a DC? And let Chris do his first, unless you okay. don't want to, Chris. <laughs> no, no, that sounds like fun because I was—I mean, his is the one I'm most looking forward to. So rather than than uh, wait all the way to the end of the episode, yeah, yeah we'll let him yeah. let him get us off to a to a raucous start because it is poor drama. That's terrible. poor drama, folks. You're sp- well, it's a pod. That, if we were a live TV show, I'd be like, <laughs> yeah, you might want to put the best till the last. But you know, you know, you guys know as well as I know. That they would just skip to the end. They would just flip over to the end to hear mine first. <laughs> and, and to be fair, I don't think the books that Scott and I have are are losers as far as discussions go. No, no. no, the, no. The, but but they have. <laughs> they're on a different level of discussion. That's for sure. Yes. <laughs> well, this is this I, I, is I'm one. Taking your comics a little. More, well, I'm taking Scott's a little more seriously than yours. But yeah, as comic books, yeah, they were. <laughs> Frankly, Real as comic. I was reading this one, I was saying to myself, this seems like a book Chris would pick. I was thinking, I could easily hear you doing this in Assistant Editor's Month. <laughs> that's that's how it, it first got to me. Yeah, I, I could sure. hear you I, talking with the other Assistant Editors about that, this one. That's the problem with me, though, is I'm, I'm so ignorant of, of superhero comics that I don't know how I would ever stumble upon this one without, you know... Well, we know how you'd stumble across it. You'd be at a garage sale, you'd see it, and you'd pick it up yes. for, for 25 cents. Yes, for sure. Oh, I definitely would. On the cover alone, I would pick up that comic. <laughs> I mean, just as a as a comic, it is, like, it's 1975, so that was, like, that, like, that was the age that I was looking at, com- that just brings me back to that age, you know, when I would, where I didn't really like buy comics that I didn't really have money to buy comics, but you know, I would stumble upon comics from friends or stuff. And this just, you know, with the art, the story, the cover, especially just reminds me of the, just like typical comic I would see as an eight year old kid. What's funny is, is as soon as you sent me that, that text saying, you know, essentially, hey, you know, recommend me a book for a, for a get Chris to read a goddamn superhero comic segment. I was I, this book immediately <laughs> jumped to my mind because, like I say, it's been rolling around back there for a while now, ever since I, I read it, you know, the, and it was several months ago that I read it. But it's it's stuck with me as th- this is definitely in the queue for when we need a good, yeah, wacky. Well, you, you know, know, we're rolling up to the 250th anniversary of America. So, you know. But I also think, looking at this one, and I don't want to talk about it too much more without a synopsis, but I don't think the cover truly gives you a hint as to how wacky it is. No, <laughs> not at all. No, yeah, no, the cover just seems like a normal, yeah, yeah, the, nothing, well, not until you get to, like, page two. <laughs> things start going piss wacky on this one. No, see, to me, it, it's it's page five where it truly goes into into the Haney insanity. Well, oh yeah, yeah, and it doesn't stop till the end. It, as a as a little bit of setup for this segment, 
Um, I'm just going to give a little context here for, uh, you know, in the, in the Stan Lee theory that uh, every comic is somebody's first, we're going to go with, uh, you know, every episode of a podcast is potentially somebody's first. So for anybody that doesn't know, uh, Chris here is uh, one half of the two true freaks, you know, myself being the other one. So, you know, Chris is one of the OG freaks. And he and I used to do several uh, weekly, uh, monthly shows together. And one of them was called uh, Comics Monthly Monday. And everybody's favorite segment of that particular show was a little thing we like to call... Get Chris to read a goddamn superhero comic. comic. It's all you, Chris. Like, another good thing would be some stupid, like, music. That always goes well with my delivery. You mean you mean behind the uh, synopsis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you, if, if you I, so desire. I mean, the, the goal is to make me sound as stupid as possible. <laughs> that one that we did a, a couple months ago there, yeah. with just you and I doing, doing... I did it just like an old episode of Comics Monthly Monday where I put that weird... I don't even know what the name of that music is. That that little like semi dramatic music that always used. Oh to yeah, I put that one in. Yeah, I managed to make that music sound stupid. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and now to work. <laughs> As he turns his brain down five five notches into the negatives. Somebody's got it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough job. <clears throat> Hello, I am Chris. And today, I am reading The Brave and the Bold, Volume 21, Number 121, with art by Jim Aparo, and super patriotic story by Bob Haney. I say patriotic because this is a comic from America's Bicentennial, which is which means the 200th birthday in 1975, because America was born in 1775. America thinks the best thing to do is make an old train into a moving America museum by putting in exhibits of the moon landing and the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. But don't worry, the train is safe because Batman has his own exhibit because it is important on America's birthday that we know the history of America's greatest crime. Also... The Goofy Metal Men are there with their exhibit of famous history of American robots. I like the Wild West robots the best. Then when the Metal Men have to go because they get a totally not suspicious telegram saying that their long lost leader, Trentus Magnus or something, is somewhere else. So they should totally go there and not guard the train from half-breed Indians. Then... The curator, Chuck Wing, and his assistant and security chief show up and say, we are totally white people here to guard the Constitution and not half half Native American terrorists at all. But guess what? They totally are. Who would have guessed that? (laughs) Batman gets knocked out, and when he wakes up, he finds out that Chucky Wing and his friends are actually what politically per- correct people call half-breed red-skin engines, who then poop on all the patriotic fun by explaining how the white man gave them the shaft. They want all their land and money back, or they will tomahawk the Declaration of Independence. The president is concerned, 
but I am concerned because why does President Jerry Ford look like Richard Nixon? <laughs> Batman tries to talk them down, but they are having no part of his rich white man fork tongue. Meanwhile, the metal men realize they were tricked and rush back to the train and then sneak back in on in a number of stupid metal men ways. They let Batman go and then detach the car with the holy documents in it from the rest of the train, again in a stupid way. Batman gets beat up again and tied to the cow catcher on the engine that the, the mental men rerouted to crash, but they don't want to squash Batman, so they let the train continue to the reservation. Then, then they get, and I am not kidding now, a smoke signal from Washington saying foreign terrorists have put a bomb on the train. Mr. Wing thinks it is more white man lies, but they all team up for, to look for the bomb. They find out the bomb is really a painting because one of the generals in it is the wrong person from the historical battle because they painted a picture from scratch rather than copying a painting that already exists. They chuck the painting out the window and America's treasures are saved. Now everyone is friends and America can go on with its birthday and ignore the dozens of felonies committed. The moral of this story is America can screw the Indians for 200 years, but if you get Batman to talk to them on America's birthday, then they will totally realize in five minutes that we're all Americans. Problem solved in 1975. The end. <laughs> it just fills me with patriotic pride to read this book. Are you sure that's I don't the know one what it filled me with, but it filled me with something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was Next. trying to piece together what was patriotic and what was unpatriotic and what was politically correct and what wasn't politically correct, and it all just mixes together. So, <laughs> The first question I have is, do you think, both of you, do you think Bob Haney just threw together a story and this is what came out, or do you think he actually had a higher motivation, that he was trying to write something to correct the wrongs of 200 years, 300 years, however long ago you know the Indians got screwed? Do, do you think he, he thought he was somehow writing a... a you know, a story that would resonate with people and make them feel like, wow, that that really was wrong, what happened back then. Well, I know there were a lot of movies like Billy Jack and stuff in that time, so, like, the plight of the American, and that was, like, the prime time for the ad with the crying Indian and the pollution by the side of the road. So, yeah, and you have like, I don't, I don't know Bob Haney's... Oscars, too, you I, know, stuff I don't like. know, I don't know Bob Haney's, like, history of, of writing and stuff, but it could—I mean, it could have been a little combination of cashing in on on everybody was cashing in on the bicentennial when the bicentennial. I mean, I had a bicentennial bike when I was. Everything was bicentennial, and uh, you know they even had like all the cartoons went bicentennial for the the whole thing. So it might have been like cashing on the Indians, cashing on the bicentennial, and but but being like socially conscious was in in their own way, was also a big thing then. So I think it's sort of a, a combination of that. I just don't think he really knew how to do I think he tried, but, like, you know, at one point he goes, we're not just, you know, we're not just engines or something like that. But then, like, later on in the book, 
Batman actually in his mind, but thinking about them is go, those engines are never going to, you know, <laughs> it's just like, I don't, you know, I like, I mean, did they go to prison after this? <laughs> they probably should have. <laughs> yeah, just because they said, oh, you know what, we realized we were wrong isn't good yeah. enough to. Uh... Yeah, they just kidnapped that. They were they were standing. They were literally like when I it wasn't a joke when I said they were going to tomahawk the Constitution. They actually have a picture of a brave, you know, with headdress on and a tomahawk in his hand standing over the Constitution. So, yeah, it's it's really weird. So, like, it portrays them as bad guys, but literally in the last few panels, everything's everything's fine. And like this guy is a a professor. He's educated on history and stuff, and he explained to Batman exactly why they're mad at the white men in America. But at the end, he, the, the, at the end, he goes, "What it just co- all comes down to it, we're all Americans here." And it's like that's not what you were saying. <laughs> that's not the whole seeming point of your existence and secret existence and master plan, you know. Yeah, you but know, again, if you get talked off the ledge it. that easily, mm-hmm. you shouldn't be hijacking a train in the first place. Right? How did he? If he felt about it so strongly, how can you? How can I mean? Maybe if it is Batman. Batman's weird in this one. Batman just keeps getting knocked out and tied up. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't really do much of a job. No, I understand letting his guard down at first when he first gets knocked out, knocked out because he doesn't really have any reason to suspect the guy, but. You know, it's almost like, okay, they had the ruse to get rid of the metal men, but we don't care that Batman is still on the train. That doesn't seem right to me. I mean, I know the metal men have powers, and, and technically they're more powerful than Batman, but shouldn't they be looking to get rid of both of them? Right, yeah, yeah, definitely. And and that's the thing is, they didn't, like, they didn't have a plan to get rid of Batman. Batman just sort of seemed to, like... He just he just got a chance to get rid of Batman, or maybe they didn't. He that was before their their whatever their plan was for Batman. But uh, yeah, it would seem like you wouldn't want Batman running around on the train. That was the whole reason for having Batman on the train. Now that you know, he gets knocked out, and then he wakes up, and and they're you know they're in full war regalia with headdresses and everything, and. I don't know, it just jumps out to me like like we really, that's like, that's what I was talking about earlier when I said the first scene that truly seems to be, like, insane. Because it almost feels like a surrealistic scene from a, you know, from a movie of the week, uh, where it's just like, you know, you, you wake up and, you, like, the camera comes out of focus and it slowly focuses in on these same guys and they're all in this Indian wear. And it just seems really just freaky to me at that point. The whole, the whole book becomes surreal yeah i mean you can well, do that in Batman you know the these guys may very well be very well educated well spoken you know it, it's impossible really to to understand or imagine exactly what kind of diction they actually are, are using but just the fact of batman wakes up and the lead guy says no pale face we are not silly cigar store engines. I hear that, 
in like Jay Silverheels yes, Tonto yes. speak from the old, you know, no pale face, you know, in, in that goofy, you know, like me Tarzan <laughs> speak that he would do. So it just sounds. Well, ridiculous. yeah, like, I mean, no pale face is totally a, a cliche. And he's yeah. basically saying, you know, cliche. We are not right. cliches. Yeah, it's it'd be it would. I mean, it's already is basically like that. You know, it's it's about how, you know, the the, the Indians have gotten a a, a Native Americans. (laughs) They don't even say Indians in this one. They say Indians or Redskins. Redskins happens quite a few times. And uh, well, I don't I I don't know. I, I could be wrong here and I don't mean to offend anybody. But I don't know if redskin was always considered to be a uh, pejorative term. None none of it was. Then I think I don't, you know, as I can't speak as a Native American. I'm sure Native Americans have found, like, their portrayal offensive since, you know, the first Western movie or whatever, you know. Well, I mean, is is it any more offensive? And I, I truly mean this. I'm not trying to start an argument or anything. I'm just throwing this out there, and I know people are sensitive and I, I don't want to insult anybody, but is it different than calling anybody black or brown? Not th- it's not then. In today's context, this is like top to bottom, like offensive, and, you know, if this got, if this got printed, like, there would be people like, sitting around going like with their brains exploding, trying to figure out which particular fra- you know panel to <laughs> make into the meme <laughs> to, well when, when he says engines yeah. the, the one that scott pointed out earlier they have engines in quotations so clearly when he says right. that he's making fun of the stereotype yes he, he's 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 making fun of the ignorance that has people saying it that way so that shouldn't be insulting that should be pointing out that you know that he's trying to correct a wrong there and as I said, I think Redskins, at least at that time, at that in that era, I don't think that was considered to be an offensive term. Yeah, no, I I think like like I think when they wrote this and when it came out, like it probably didn't, you know, register as being offensive to anybody except for you know maybe some a Native American. I don't know how many Native Americans were reading Batman comics. Probably a, a amount of them. I don't, uh, you know, I'd I'd. I'd love to find somebody who read it in 1975 who was Native American to see what they thought. But I think to the average American, especially to the average kid that was like reading Batman or or anybody reading Batman at the time, it was probably a little better than a lot of like comic book portrayals of Indians, you know. I mean, comic book portrayals that weren't even addressing, you know, the political issues. Right. Uh, Yeah. No, there were just, yeah. I mean, there were, I mean, there were whole whole runs of comics where they were just the heavies you know they were just bloodthirsty heavies through it and every once in a while you would get a uh, heartwarming story where the good guy got stuck with with a, you know a native american and they had to both work together to survive and forged a grudging pr- friendship or something like that you know and standard, enemy mine yeah a standard yeah. western stuff but yeah. like no, this this was probably more like this was probably like, for lack of a better term, like sort of in the like for comic books in the woke category of it wasn't in the big like if like you want to go big woke for this time period, it would be Marlon Brando, like sending the Native American woman to to 
get his Oscar for him and stuff. Sheen Littlefeather. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and stuff. Who is actually I Maria I, I Louise think, Cruz, by the way. <laughs> I think this comic, when it came out, would be more in that category. Like, it, like you know, at that time. And which makes these, I mean, that's what's great about any kind of media is you can just track. <laughs> and I, someday I'm going to write a book about it, but like, I think like pop culture movies and pop culture entertainment is actually like the most potent way of like learning about like a cultural time period or what, what is in the public's mind at any time. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and this 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 is sort of I mean it's not it's it's not it's not like an art film or an essay or something trying to do it it's trying to entertain and sell comic books at, at, at the same time so it, which it, which brings me back to my initial question do you think Bob Haney was just trying to sell comics and come up with a story and he knew that Native Americans were on people's minds so let me throw this out here or was he actually trying to be, you know, the 1975 version of Woke? I, I honestly don't think Bob Haney was that deep with right. his, with his uh, you know, really, I don't. I mean, I think the first half of what you said that, you know, Indians were on people's minds or, you know, I, I'm not sure where this is in the history of like the crying Indian, you know, garbage on the on the side of the road commercial, but you know, I'm, I'm sure that it was one of those type of things. You know, he, he saw something like that and said, oh, you know, that might make a good story. And I don't think it went any deeper than that. I mean, do you think somebody, I don't, I don't know how they ran things in those days, but do you think somebody said to him, like, look, we want this story. It's a train and it's got all these American artifacts and, you know, Batman team up and see if he can work some, you know, an, uh, an, a sympathetic American Indian story in there, too, you know. I, I and, doubt and this it. This was his attempt at that, you know. Because you know, it, maybe if it was Marvel comics, maybe. But this is DC, where right. you know, editorial mandates like that usually came down to something like, "Hey, put a monkey on the cover," <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I just, you know, all this that we're seeing today with comics, you know, with with trying to, you know, preach a message or or you know whatever. That's a Fairly modern phenomenon. Uh, you go all the way back to this, 1975. I really don't think anybody was looking to beat any political drums at all in a title like Brave and the Bold. Now, Green, you know, Green Lantern was a, a slightly different, you know, example. They they were trying to be kind of socially conscious, but this, no, this this was a title that I think they pretty well understood was was for the kiddies. Yeah, I, yeah, that's, well, that's why what I was Bob Haney was on the time. I was going to say, these are all one-shot stories that are, you know, with familiar Batman and a way to introduce other DCs, you know. I mean, that was a way that they were, con like, that's how I would have found out about the Metal Men in 1975. Exactly, yes. I would have gotten a hold of this comic. And I would have, and I would have been more liable to read it because I didn't have to have any of the because, you know, the odds of me finding the next issue after this or back issues of it were zero pro usually for for me. So like, yeah, and that's and that's you know the, I mean it was a, it, I mean that was what those crossover series were for. You know, they were cross promotion. 
Yeah, we should take uh, the most popular characters we have and team them up regularly with other characters so that people who would, would not be familiar with those other characters take a liking to them and start buying those books as well. Yeah. So did this, it's a pr- pretty this simple synergy, really. Did this even come out in 1976? Is that was uh, this... It's dated like September 1975. Yeah, September 75. So I doubt it was out by the end of the year, honestly. But I can look it up real quick here. Let's I think I think I... they were post dated. So if it's dated September of of 75, it probably came out around June of 75. Yeah, the, the, that's what I was wondering. I'm like, they are way ahead of the 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 bicentennial. Train. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was young enough in the bicentennial that I wasn't really. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Too up on the, uh, you know, on on the build up to it. I remember, I remember in '76 the, you know, the excitement for the bicentennial and yeah. the, the, you know, the big ships coming into the harbor in New York and all of that stuff, and the, that Fourth of July being a particularly big holiday. But I don't remember like anybody talking in anticipation of it in 1975. But that right, could that could I'm be saying. a combination of the fact that I was you know still relatively young, and it's also so long ago that you know I'm old and feeble-minded now. Yeah, and and the things I was paying attention to in 1975 were not things on the news, you know, or, or generally it would be something I would think more adults would be talking about. God, I remember even like USA of Archie. Everything was bicentennial. Everything. Yeah. All the serials. Couple quick things on this one. You you mentioned that Batman, you know, we see him get clouded in the head once, and then the other time he gets knocked out. I think he gets knocked out several times, as you say, but the other ones seem to be off screen when it happens. But I don't know if either of you guys caught it, but several months ago when I was on this read through, I took screenshots because I'm reading these uh, on my iPad, and I took screenshots and then I isolated the individual panels. And now I was only reading Apero illustrated issues of Brave and the Bold, but I still found like over a dozen, I'm thinking like a couple of dozen panels in the issues that I read. And I didn't even read like every issue because I'm still working my way through them. It was, it was a, you know, a good chunk of issues, probably several years worth. But anyway, I found panel after panel after panel of Batman being clubbed in the head. <laughs> and my caption for it was, you know, something about, you know, how, Batman had to be brain damaged by this point. Yeah, yeah. Because in, you know, most of Worse these than panels a football were... player, a boxer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking, like Rocky Balboa. You know, he's brain damaged by, by the end of Rocky Four. you know. Here's Batman getting clubbed in the... And some of these panels were within the same issue. So sometimes he was getting clouded over the head more than once in one issue. So you compound all of that, and I'm thinking that, you know, he may have started out as the world's greatest detective. He's the world's greatest vegetable by, you know, by year yes. three or four, you know. He's, he's like, continually let, taking a blow to the head. Let's not even, um, let's not even, um, consider the PTSD from multiple co- concussions on concurrent days and stuff like that. Oh, if, if he isn't dead, he should be sitting in a wheelchair quivering. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I also think of, uh, I don't know if either of you have ever seen the Red Letter Media, uh, the the Mr. Plinkett review of uh, Indiana Jones and the um, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yes. But there's a shot, it's hysterical, it's a Photoshop of Indy, and he's all deformed and messed up, and his face is just freakish. And the point the guy is making as the image is up is that you know, these are fictionalized movies of, of a romanticized adventure that you're vicariously living. But if he was a real person, this is what he would look like. After Everybody would be in wheelchairs by the times. third movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I, I guess that's what they were all afraid of with the comic books. You know, like that was the legitimate fear, I guess, you know, of, of the, you know, the thought that the comic books would, uh, you know, ruin kids or whatever, because maybe it would make, you know make make them think, oh, this is no big deal. I'll just bonk this kid over the head with a hammer, and uh, you know he'll wake up fine in an hour or two. <laughs> He's got right. his Batman mask on. He'll be fine. Right. I I think they like to. I think during this time period of Batman, especially for the kids, they liked. They didn't like to have like fight sequences with Batman as much as just sort of have Batman as a character in it, and like. Like the cover, I mean, he's he's tied up and in danger, like like um, um, you know, the perils of Penelope or something like like <laughs> on the cover and twice in the book. And I wonder if that's not just from the kids' perception because they knew the kids probably watched the the Adam West stuff too, and like in in those ones, Batman and Robin were always ended up you know tied to a bomb or something, and. I wonder if they just kept it to that because then you keep you, you don't make it as violent for the little kids. It's more like Batman is doing detective stuff and everyone. And then it's more of him getting out of situations than just going and like beating everybody up and <laughs> resolving the situation. But I mean, yeah, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. But in this particular issue, I, I think Batman gives a very poor showing. Because now Paul and I have talked about this many times that we prefer this era of Batman because he is fallible. He, he does get conked over the head or shot or beaten up, whereas modern day Batman seems to be just, you know, in this invincible person that plans things 45 steps ahead of every and he just okay. can't be beaten. It's I prefer Dark, this Dark so Avenger versus Super Detective. Exactly. You know? But this one it is I mean, there's a yeah, this one is just dopey. Ten, for example. Yeah, he he does, and you know, granted, like we say, I, I don't want him to be this this super ridiculous thing, but here he is tied to a pole on page ten, and it takes the metal men to free him. He's an escape artist. He he just five issues prior to this, I think it was. I'm pretty sure it's issue one sixteen. He teams up with Mister Miracle. Who, and, and they Red, Redskins like, know how to tie knots. Really. They took him out with a zip tie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's ridiculous. But uh, speaking of ridiculous, I really only had uh, uh, just a couple quick notes. I just wanted to kind of pick you guys' brains for this. So page five, first panel, um, somebody has drawn Batman's attention to uh, what's going on outside. He looks out the window and he goes, huh? What in blazes? And then in the next panel, he goes, borders on the train roof. Professor, alert the guards. Now, he looks out the window. 
he sees people running atop the roof of the train. Think about that for a minute. No, see, I'm, I'm he's thinking that he's... train! I'm thinking he sees them, like, climbing up to the roof. Yeah, but there... Because that's the only thing that makes sense. But there's, 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 a, there's like, an outline of them on it. Like, they're, like, on a they're train They're, like, parallel to, to the train, yeah. Yeah, and I'm wondering if yeah. maybe they pull... Maybe it's some other vehicle that pulled up beside the train or something, but they don't make that clear. No. It's 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 like one of those things. If it was a movie, it would probably just go by so fast that nobody would question it until like <laughs> right. you know, until Red Letter Media goes. Did you see the? Did you see the people on the other train on the other side? No, but you're. <laughs> but I mean, I think that's how you can no prize it. That they're on some sort of vehicle that pulled up alongside the train and then climbed up. But that doesn't explain how. Those people I'm surprised are, are, are just the three people that were already on the train. Who who exactly climbed onto the roof? I yeah, I, I have no idea. The other one, and this one, Chris even commented on this. The other one starts in the at the very end of page fourteen, where the train's barreling along, and you can see that the train is cresting a hill, and then shortly it kind of looks like it's going to be going between a couple of mountains. So there's not a lot of time to see what they're seeing. And it's, it's, somebody says, smoke talk from the reservation, welcoming us. And then the next panel, you know, you turn the page, the next panel, and the guy's looking out the window, he goes, no, it's a message relayed from Washington. And these, granted, these are smoke signals. Right. <laughs> he said, it says, Fort Tariff Group planted bomb aboard train due to go off in one hour. Now, I know jack shit about smoke signals, but I'm thinking that takes a hell of a long time to send that message via smoke signal. Yeah, smoke signals are not like Morse code. I, I was a Cub Scout. We actually did smoke signals. Smoke signals are like vague, you know, you can communicate vague things. You can't go like, you know, you know. Billy's down the well. Stop. Right. You know, Fl Fluffy just ran up to the house. Said Billy's in the well. You know. Well, I just I just <laughs> go to I just go to one of Scott's favorite things and I switch over to F Troop because Sergeant O'Rourke would always read smoke signals that were as complicated as that. Yeah, it's like it's like many men come from the west or something like that. Right. And, and right. and so so like me, but I don't know. Maybe they're like Wakanda, and they have developed a whole language where it's just like, you know, to 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 you know to um to compensate for modern times. So now they have words for you know foreign terror terror group and stuff like that. One hour. <laughs> I think this book would go up like five hundred percent. If they would just, if Haney had a replaced pale face with white man, it just, yes. it seems so, I don't know, dated and weird and just completely out of place for, for these modern day, you know, Indian descent people to be using the word pale face. It just makes them sound ridiculous. Uh, well, I mean, like, think about it, though. If the, the, the kids that were reading this book, if they were playing the Indians, they would probably call the other kids that were cowboys pale face. So, you know. And, and, and would it would. seem as dated in 1975? 
No, people are still watching The Lone Ranger on... When we were talking yeah. 45 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, when one was F-Troop on, didn't they call him Pale Faces and F-Troop? Yeah. Mid, maybe the uh, mid-60s, I'm not sure. Yeah, mid, F-Troop, mid to late. F-Troop probably went wrong with episodes like five times as much in each episode as this comic. <laughs> but the difference is F-Troop was billed as a comedy. This just yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. The Indians were not supposed to be realistic Indians in F Troop. I I assume they are supposed to be realistic Indians in this one. I, I get, I'm amused, and this is you know going off the uh, not off the subject, but off the comic a little. I'm amused over the fact that they found uh, Italian people to be you know interchangeable with Indians. You know, Chief Wild Eagle was uh, was a Frank de Cordova. Uh, Iron Whatever the guy you know who was crying on the side of the road was an Italian dude. Uh, Iron Eyes was that his yeah, name? Yeah, Iron, Iron Eyes Cody. I think. Cody, that's it. Yeah. And and uh, you know in in wrestling you know of the day Chief J Strongbow was an Italian guy named Joe Scarpa. Well, it- Italians can 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 get a hell of a tan. <laughs> I guess if they work on it. But, you know, and then, then you know, there's, there's some old movies from, you know, the 50s and 60s where you had people playing Native Americans who just had no business at all doing it, really, when, you, you know, if, you, if you're trying to truly create that impression. But Oh, yeah, it was just like slap some red makeup on any white person and, and send them out there, you know. Or just the all-time, uh, and it's not Native American, but the all-time casting comedy moment for me is casting John Wayne as Genghis Khan. Yeah, that was brilliant. <laughs> but just, you know, I, I do find that amusing. I know some people actually find it bothersome, you know, that that, that they did that. But I, I, I think it's a, you know, it's a bygone era and things were looked at differently then and I try not to be quite so sensitive about it. But I, I just it find was it a crazy I'm amused time by it. Actors and actresses wanted to try new things. <laughs> He was just like Genghis Khan. He was one of the greatest conquerors ever. I'll play him. Yeah. Put a mustache on me. It'll be fine. I, 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 I'm a fan of a lot of John Wayne's movies, but, you know, he did his, his the range of roles he should be playing wasn't that that wide. Yeah, he, he was so. he was kind of a Schwarzenegger in that sort of way. I think, have, better, I think he was a better actor than Schwarzenegger. Well, yeah, but, yeah. But, but, but again, I, I get what you're saying as far as limitations. You know, he was fine playing the cop. He was fine playing the, uh, the cowboy. He was fine playing the, you know, the, uh, you know the, the American going back to Ireland and the quiet man. All that stuff, you know, was, was cool. But, you know, putting him as, as Genghis Khan, not so, real, not so uh, believable. Putting him as the Roman centurion as the, in the greatest story ever told, not really so believable. He he wasn't a master of accents, really. No. <laughs> it's sort of like it was sort of like when people kept casting Keanu Reeves as British people, like in Dracula, <laughs> watching watching Theodore in now I can't remember Ted's last name. Watching Ted oh. in, in uh, Bram Stoker's oh, Dracula was Ted, yeah. Was always uh, always or something Esquire. Uh, yeah. I can't even think of what it is either. I can't remember. He can barely do Ted these days. Ted Theodore Logan. That was Ted Theodore it? Logan. Yes. Yeah. Well, was yeah, I guess was was Bill Esquire? Movie, uh, like, Bill S. Preston yeah. Esquire. Yes. 
Okay, and I haven't seen the new movie yet, but I've heard I've heard good things. But it's we are good. definitely uh, tangenting far right now. I looked up. Uh, I was just curious. I looked up Jay Silverheels, and he, he was actually, in fact a Native was. American. Yeah, he actually was. I just learned that he died the same year that the Legend of the Lone Ranger, the you know where they were replaced with um, with uh, Clinton Spilsbury and uh, Michael Horse. He died that year. He died in 1980. I didn't know that. That's kind of sad. Anyway, <laughs> now that you brought us down. Yeah. What did what did you think of the art in this one though? Fantastic. I think the art is sharp. Yeah. yeah. I think this this is this is <laughs> Jim Aparo really bringing it. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I'm thinking I'm thinking he inked himself here. Uh, you know the detail work looks good, the line work looks good, the shadows look very good. Uh, and then you know you you top that off with he's you know, putting in Batman and then he, you're combining that with, you know, the metal men who are kind of silly characters in the way that they're drawn. And, and to do it in a way where it feels seamless, I, I give him a lot of credit. I mean, he, he for me, is the reason to read and collect uh, these issues of Brave and the Bold. Because now, while I still get a, a hoot out of them, and I loved them as a kid, you know, reading them as a 52-year-old man, you know, they're they're all pretty much as goofy as... Now, this one's especially goofy, but they're all goofy when they're Bob Haney issues. But this art, I mean, totally makes them worth owning. Uh, it, it's just... This is my Batman. It's just beautiful stuff. Batman, despite his poor showing in the issue, looks great. I mean... Yeah. He, just looks fantastic. So yeah, on, on an art level, I, I love well, it. People don't like drawing stuff like trains because they're complicated and there's a lot of always a lot of perspective involved in it. And I mean, every shot of the train in this is just lovingly drawn. Yeah. The the yeah. the cover is the, the 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 way it looks on the cover and the angle that it's at. It's just like you don't see people taking that much time for mechanical stuff like that and it's it's just got that like midpoint between like regular comic art and the moodiness of like bernie wrightson and right it's it's just it's 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 just it's just pitch perfect it like like the way the way this comic looks all the way through is just like how i picture comics of that time period you know when when you had somebody who was, you know, I, I mean, he wasn't just trying to get an issue out. This is everything is gorgeously thought out, no matter how goofy the story is. See, you know, I, it, there was a I've lot of care the, put into this. I've made the breakdown on occasion of who is the best artist ever to draw a particular character, but who is the signature artist. Like for me with Batman, I think the best artist ever to do Batman was Neil Adams. But the signature artist for Batman is Jim Aparo. In my in my mind, I understand others might have different opinions on that. I don't know. I was actually just mulling it over because I mean I, I love both of them. Um, I don't know. It's it's tough to for me to say whether I agree with that or not because I really love them. But, but I mean, for me, it's it's always been. Jim Aparo on Batman because he just he defines Batman for me 
But uh, but yeah, I mean, a Paro or excuse me, a Adams Batman is, I mean, iconic yeah. and, and incredible, and probably yeah. more more widely known outside of comic circles too. So I mean, you like Adams? I always right. I always picture as more of the like Batman tweaked more towards the the horror mis- mysterious elements of him, and he's right. a He's a they they they're actually their their Batmans are drafted fairly similar, but Neil Adams Batman always looks like he's more in the fog and fluid, whereas Aparo's Batman is is like I don't want to say angular because he's not angular, but he's like a he's like a stick almost, you know he's he's very sharp and and defined and like. It's a lot of it has to do with like how his cape look looks yeah. in, in a lot of them, and uh, yeah, his Batman his Batman always just looks like the prototypical comic Batman, where Neil Adams is getting more into you know the artistic sort of thing. But the, like yeah, I I I love it. There's the the scene where he's looking at the guys boarding the train, impossibly like his face that that face. And the way his body is angled and the way his cape is moving is just perfect. Yeah, I love it. Two grades on this one? I think we're ready. All right. Chris, your book, so you go first. So what is the art story and cover? Yep. And then Uh, overall. I'm, I'm giving the art and the cover a 10 on this one. That's we, we, we graded school grades, A through F. Oh, okay. So we get we get. I'll give him an A plus since I'm not on all the time. I can go like I'll go high with my. <laughs> you can go, go with high whatever you like, my friend. So so I'm giving him A plus for the for the uh, for the art and the cover, and it's either a one or a ten for the story because I mean for entertainment factor and fodder for me to read a superhero comic ten you know a plus a plus 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 but for like actual if I was sitting down and like analyzing it as a story like yeah one is too mean I would have to give it a two so that would probably be a D minus right. <laughs> it's close staff close staff as you can get. All right, I'll go next. Um, I mean, it, it's hard for me to be terribly objective because, I mean, Apero's Batman is, I mean, that's my sweet spot with Batman. I mean, he, he draws my Batman. Um, so I, I, I love the art in this. Cover is very, very good. Um, I, I love the I'd cover. A, yeah, I, I love the cover, but I don't know if I'd give it a straight-up A+, because I, I reserve A-pluses. Um, m- much because of Paul's grading scale on this, of you know, a-, a plus has to be an iconic cover. I don't know that it's iconic, but it is really awesome. I think I'll say an A. I, I think an A plus um, would would be I don't know a little bit different than that, but I do really like it. It's funny, you know, we were talking about Adams versus Apero on Batman, and I I think the Batman on the cover, you know, tied to the front of the train. I think he looks very Adams right there because he's much more lean than uh than uh Apero usually draws him. He he's leaning more towards the uh the Adams very lean Batman. But anyway, I mean it's it's a great image. I think part of the reason I just can't give this an A+ is because of the, the metal men who I like, but 
but I don't love. And they're they're kind of goofy, and you know it's probably not fair to you know to the artists, but it's just it's hard to make them really look all that great. Uh, but it is a really good cover. Uh, interior art, I, I love. I mean, as you say, just you know such incredible detail. Um, he's really bringing his A game. I'd love to know who colored the book because the only interior credit we get. Um, on a quick glance here is just Jim O'Para himself. I don't even see a credit for Haney as the writer here. It's yeah, it's, no, he it's, does have it's one. written on the front page and the first page. Uh, yeah, it's just oh, yeah, right to the right left by the stars. It, it yeah, looks yeah. more like an artist's signature than like really yeah. credits. <laughs> but I, I don't know who colored it. I don't know if it was Apero himself or, or someone else, but I don't think the colors are doing the art any favors. Um, and I think that accounts for some of what I initially thought was inking issues, because a lot of it's very dark, but I actually think it's the color choices. I'd love to see this in black and white. I bet you it really looks awesome. Where, yeah. I, I, where's all the red, white, and blue? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I really do like I think I'm going to go with A on the, on the art as well, just because I, I have seen – artwork by Apero uh, in other stories that I, I think is a little bit better, a little more refined, and, and definitely a straight-up A+. Plus. But I, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's right up there. Batman himself looks fantastic. Uh, the Metal Men look good and, and seldom really look better. I kind of prefer the Metal Men, though, uh, to be illustrated by um, Joe Staten. And I know that's not fair because this is a team-up book, you know, and, and they're not drawn by their you know, the, the artist you may think of as like a, a particular character's like their artist, you know, because Apero's doing the art here. But I just, it's not that they're off model or anything. It's just, I, I don't know that he's really suited to those characters, especially. I don't know. It's, it's hard to define, but I mean, they look really good. Um, I think it's a lot of it's the nature of the story, honestly. And then the story itself, as you say, as a, as a get Chris, it's it's an A plus. You know, you knocked it out of the park. But as an actual story to to sit down and, and make some sort of sense of, yeah, I'm with you. I'm going to go D minus as well. I mean, it, it it would be an F except for the fact. I, I mean, I can follow it. I can make what sense there is to be made of it. Of it, but it's not a good story. It's all kinds of wacky. There's great leaps in logic. Batman is way out of character, and it's just silly as hell. Um, but as an overall grade for the book, <laughs> I mean, I'd have to give it like a B plus because it's still fun as hell. And it I is mean, fun. That's kind of that. That's kind of how Bob Haney, Jim Aparo, Brave and the Bolds are. They're dumb, but they're fun. Yeah, this has some meat to chew on too, like goofy. <laughs> politically incorrect now meet but it's more interesting than the average goofy comic did you give your overall scat yeah uh, uh b i think it's a b plus yeah okay so i think the cover is very sharp and i'm pretty much in agreement with you scott that it's almost like the inclusion of the metal men is what takes it off of <laughs> it being as good as it could be because you know i, I th when i think of like an a plus i'm thinking of a, you know one that you'd love to have the artwork so that you could make a poster out of it you know yes and yeah. i can't imagine myself ever having a poster of the metal man 
So it's almost like by the nature of what they're drawing, it's going to be removed from A plus just because of that. Uh, and that's it's I, I understand that's unfair, but you know it is what it is. Uh, you know when when you look at the left half of the cover that that includes Batman, it looks awesome. Uh, it's and then as you get further to the right, you get to the sillier metal men, and that kind of like just looks like yeah, it's all right. And like I said, it's more the nature of the characters than it is the actual rendering, but right. it is what it is. So. I'm gonna say, you know, did they ever? I'm sorry, I, I hate to interrupt. I just, I just thought of this though. I got a question for them. But did they ever do anything to kind of justify their being in this book? I mean, because usually with the team up books, I mean, a good team up book, in my opinion, showcases both of the people that you're that you're teaming up. And they I might be in it be... more than Batman, but they just like get sidelined. And then just do a couple goofy things. I think maybe, maybe you know they're giving you that thing that you know the the disappearance of their creator and all of that just to give you kind of some intrigue into the characters that you'd have to yeah. follow wherever their stories were to try and figure out what's going on. And I don't know that they actually had anywhere that their stories were appearing at this time. I, I'm not sure how it matches up in the timeline, but I just completed. Um, a run, uh, I mean, collecting them, I haven't read them yet, but I just co- completed my collection of Metal Men issues illustrated by Joe State, and I, I plan to sit down and, and plow through those at some point, um, just because I'm, I'm a Joe State and Mark, I love his art. Um, I think those were around this same general time frame, but I don't That's know, maybe possible. I'll... Uh, but I, I get think they also might predate this one, I think. Yeah, I, I'm not sure, but... Uh, Maybe I'll bring one of those issues to the show in the future, just to you know, just to kind of examine the middlemen on their sure. own. That could work. Uh, so I'm going to say an A minus on the cover, and again, like I said, it's more what's drawn on it than the quality of the drawing. The interior art, I'm going to just say straight up A. I think it's really well done. There's not one panel that I look at and you know feel that it doesn't look quite right. I think everything looks good. And considering the fact that it's the Metal Men and he manages to include them in here without it changing the tone of the book particularly, I think that's a real accomplishment. So I'm going to say an A on the interior art. Uh, The story, I I can't argue with what you guys are saying about it, but I kind of view certain things in different ways. I I try to view it in, in, you know, with the way it was intended to be uh, read, right? And in I look its, at in its sil- context. Yeah, I look at Silver Age books differently than I look at Bronze Age, and I look at Bronze Age differently than I look at Golden Age or or Modern Age. Um, I kind of put Haney's stuff in the same category as Silver Age, and I mean Silver Age DC, not even Silver Age Marvel. Where right. you kind of you know you expect a certain amount of silliness, or you're more accepting of a certain amount of silliness, just because you know what you're going to get. Uh, so I, I find myself being a little bit more forgiving of some real giant holes in stories when they're in Silver Age books and when they're by Bob Haney. Uh, I do think that this one is very politically incorrect by today's standards. And I questioned whether it was quite as politically incorrect back then. I think it was probably not. 
because I don't think people, you know, had the same sensibilities then that they do now. Yeah, I, I don't think it would have made a blip on the radar back then. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to just rate it on the category of was it fun or not. And I think this was a fun story. I, I got a kick out of reading it, you know, trying to take it in the context with which it was presented. Uh, I found it to be fun. So I'm going to say a B on the story. And overall, I'm going to give the book an A-. minus. Cool. So, it sure know, was fun. <laughs> you know, we, we, we talked about, oh, these books are going to generate some conversation. That could be an episode right there. We could just end the episode, <laughs> and we only did one book. <laughs> but let's let's keep forging forward. Run, and, it, uh, run it as the 4th of July episode. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'll do mine next. Unless you have a burning desire to get to yours, Scott, because no, I don't know ahead. that we—I don't know that we're getting three in tonight. Oh, come on! <laughs> well, that's why I'm offering—I'm offering you, you know, whatever you'd rather. I think we can do it. All right, so let's just move it along then. I brought Creatures on the Loose number thirty-three, uh, and the reason I brought this is because it is the next issue of the Man Wolf story uh, after the one with Craven the Hunter that we did a couple of months back. Uh, and we were curious to see how it played out. And if you remember, that one was drawn, I believe, by George Tusca. And we had some real critical things to say about the artwork <laughs> in it. Uh, this one is penciled by George Perez and inkled, in, inkled, inked by uh, Klaus Janssen, which is the same combination we had in some Logan's Run issues that we've recently covered. Uh, and, and this is written by Kraft, David Anthony Kraft, who... Uh took over on Logan's run and did issues two through five, did the rest of the movie adaptation too. So yeah, we're reuniting the, uh, the Logan's run team, although this is two years before that. <laughs> yeah, well, well, this, this, I, I think they had not hit their stride quite the way they did in Logan's run, but we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, this has a cover date of January of 1975. And as you said, the credit, the writing credit is actually David Kraft and Tony Isabella. Right. Penciled by George Perez, inked by Klaus Janssen, colored by Petra Goldberg, and lettered by Tom Orzakowski. The story opens up in the, I guess, the police precinct, where uh, Detective Simon Stroud is being chewed out by his lieutenant because he had marked the Manwolf case as closed, uh, which I believe was three issues earlier when he had... Uh, taken a fall from the Statue of Liberty's torch, and Stroud had just assumed he died. But no, that did not happen. We cut from there to J. Jonah Jameson and his daughter-in-law-to-be, uh, Christine Saunders, who are uh, troubled by a ransom note that they've received with regard to uh, John. And then they pull an Archie Bunker and Mike uh, Stivick going out the door and have to fight to get through it at the same time. <laughs> they they go to the uh, to an estate I guess that is occupied by Craven the Hunter with giant steel doors that wouldn't arouse any suspicion from anyone. Uh, Craven Craven reveals himself and says that he has captured the man wolf and that luckily he happened to have a chamber that absorbs moon radiation because all mansions do uh, and he has John prisoner but that he's going to let John free so that they could play the deadliest game 
and he gives Jonah a rifle to defend themselves. He goes and he actually re- you know releases John and uh, and and exposes him to lunar rays. So he turns into the man wolf. He esca- he he heads out and eventually confronts uh, Jonah and Christine. Uh, Jonah does actually try to take a shot at him, but he misses. So that that's an interesting character moment as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the the man wolf knocks Jonah down and he's ready to pounce. But at this point, we have our reunited moment with Detective Simon Stroud, who comes and and uh, basically saves Jonah uh, by by tackling the man wolf. But he gets thrown and does some sort of weird dropkick move that sends the man wolf flying. I'm not sure exactly what the physics of that move are, but it does work until Craven intercedes and knocks down Stroud, but then the man wolf goes after Craven, who he remembers uh, from the previous issue. The two of them battle, and eventually Stroud throws a gas grenade into the battle, which it knocks out Craven. The man wolf runs off. Uh, they handcuff Craven, so he's under arrest. But then the man wolf turns back into John Jameson, and he reunites with the crowd, but is quickly arrested by Agent Stroud for being a wall. I'm not exactly sure how those charges play out. But that's the end of the story. It's his next issue, Solace in Flight. It's a departure. We guarantee it. Uh, my biggest disappointment in this one is I think the art overall is good, but I think they, the combination of Jansen and Perez do a really poor job with the man-wolf himself. I think he's drawn very sketchy. His, his uh, anatomy his is, is, is out of proportion. He's got a pinhead yeah. in a lot of the shots. Uh, I, I think he's poorly drawn. And it's funny because in the previous issue that we did with Craven the Hunter, I had a real problem with a mid-issue splash page. And if you told me then, well, we're going to give you another issue with a mid-issue splash page, but this time it's going to be by Perez and, and Jansen, I would think, okay, now this one I'm going to love. And yet I still don't love it. <laughs> So, you know, I think the artwork overall is good. I think the way he draws Craven is fine. I think the way he draws Jameson looks good. I think the way he draws Stroud and Saunders looks good. But the way they draw the Man-Wolf really just brings this issue down quite a bit as far as I'm concerned. It's so funny because, you know, I I opened it. Now, I knew starting, you know, going into this book, I I knew this was George Perez. Um but then, you know, opening to that first page and seeing it's Perez and Klaus Jansen, who, as you say, you know, we we just as we record this episode, we've already completed um, do, doing our shows, you know, doing our recordings for Logan's one, run one through six. I think we've done at this point. So yeah, we've we covered one more to do. Movie adaptation and we have done nothing but glow about the art in those books, you know, the the the. Perez and Jansen team in, in one through five. I mean, absolutely love that art. It's, it's stunning and it holds up. So it's, it's hard to believe that this is the same team, but you know, this is two years prior to that. And what a difference two years made because this isn't terrible. Don't get me wrong, but it's incredibly amateurish looking. 
And you can tell that this is Perez just starting out. It's it's very rough. Like I say, it's very amateurish. And in this particular case, it's so funny to say this because we were so glowing about the job that Jansen did over Perez on Logan's run. But here, I don't think Jansen's doing him any favors. I think their styles are clashing badly in, in a lot of this. Um, rather than shore up some of the shortcomings of Perez in this, because again, you know, this is Perez just getting started. This is only like his fourth or fifth uh, credit, you know, in his career right here on this book. Um, but rather than shoring him up, I, I think he's, I think he's kind of clashing with his style uh, through a lot of this. There's only really a few panels in this that I think are, are really phenomenal. A lot of it just is weird or awkward or gawky or the perspective's funky or, you know, there's a lot of it that just doesn't work. And the man wolf, while I think most of the time he looks better than Tuska's version, he still, yeah, he still doesn't really, he's not as threatening as I, I think he should be. He looks like man dog instead of man wolf, you know, he just, he looks like like a German shepherd or something for a lot of this. There's only a couple of panels where I think he really looks, you know, frightening and, and monster like like page 26, that second panel where he's growling at uh, at Craven. That's now that's a monster face. That's that's good. That looks really awesome. But a lot of the rest of it. Yeah, he he doesn't he, look. He, he belongs in the circus, just like the dog face boy. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> Um, however, I mean, there, there are glimpses, you know, there are glimpses into, you know, the, the Perez to come and there are some, some instances of some really nice artwork here. I, my favorite shot in the whole book is, uh, the little flashback sequence on the right hand side of the top panel, page seven, that half and half face of, John Jameson, you know, on the left and and then the, you know, his transformation into um the man wolf on the right, you know, doing that split face thing like they would do at the beginning of the old Hulk TV show. That's cool. That looks really neat. That looks like something Gene Colan would do. Yeah. Like with Dra- yeah. in a Dracula comic when he was turning into a bat or something, you know. The the way that the face is his face is twisting into it is really neat. Yeah. I think I and I think her, like uh, her face next to her, like the portrayal of her right there is really nice, you know. Even yeah. though she looks like a blow-up doll, but you know, I mean, it's... <laughs> <laughs> see, I think Klaus Jansen is actually well suited to horror. Yeah, and I'm disappointed with how this one presents because I think that skill that I believe he has is not on display here. No, yeah, like it's good. It's weird because I like the art in this, but that's because this is pushing like just my my what little superhero comics I read in the time period I did in the eighties were strong. Like the first page in this could have been a page off one of the the Frank Miller Klaus Jansen ones where. Frank Miller was just basically doing the sketchiest of sketch, and it was almost all Klaus Jansen. 
Right. And I was and and the cover in this, I was like, why does this? Oh, it's Klaus Janssen. And then and then I was well, like, the, co- oh, the cover I don't is the cover is Gil Kane. Is it Gil Kane? I think it's I think it's inked by think, Klaus. It's actually according to the Marvel Wiki, it's inked by Jansen and George Russos, but it's Gil Kane's pencils. And I, I think I think it. it that you can sense. see you could see the Gil Kane in it. You can see the angular yeah. stuff in the cross hatching now that I'm looking at it. Yeah. But like, like I I just I I love like that first page. I was like, okay, it's Klaus Jansen. I'm not gonna really. A lot of times he can sort of wipe out somebody else's style and make it Klaus Jansen style. But I still I like that because there were so many comics that I read that were just visually like this comic but it doesn't have his heavy like sometimes if he like maybe this was hurried and Perez could only give him the like roughest layout sketches and and he he would go over it but like usually when that was the case he had kind of a heavier hand which would have been good for this because it's a horror comic so you would have had like more shadows and stuff but a lot of it seems to be just like um you know, not a lot of detail in backgrounds or just sort of isolated, you know, thing. So I was thinking maybe it was done in a hurry. Well, I'm, I'm looking yeah. at uh, page three, uh, which is the scene with Jonah and uh, and Christine. I guess they're in uh, an office. But just looking at the way that's drawn, uh, in particular, the last two panels of it, it has the feel of a horror book for me because it's mm-hmm. just kind of so stark. There's there's backgrounds, but they're not loaded with different things. Uh, the the shot of Jonah just above that with the shadows and everything. I think it I think it played really well. Even that the shot, yeah. you know, the next shot of of Christine crying with the picture of John in the background. I think it, you know. There's not a well, lot going on in the background, but it almost gives it a noir feel to me. Yeah, and then then when they go out the door and then drive away, you have like the bottom, the the them going, the lines of the floor are sort of you know pushing your move it making movement out, and then the next panel you know it's got the windows of the building and it's just sort of pushing down, and it's it's it. It was nice. Some parts of this were reminding me of the the Frank. It makes a lot of sense now that you say this is really early Perez, and he was probably like a kid, you know, or I don't know how old he was when he started, but you know, um, but you could still see, you know, there there's there's style to it that, and that's what what made me enjoy it is it seemed like it was like done quickly, but 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 stylishly and uh yeah but man the man wolf is the man wolf and craven isn't too hot either sometimes they're both just have that sort of jangly and what is it with little heads doesn't like you <laughs> think like at some stage i'd go isn't isn't his head kind of tiny yeah <laughs> i'm thinking there's one there's one page with with uh with the werewolf that's just really egregious. It's it's in the part where they're fighting and he's just oh, I think it's on the full page <laughs> fighting thing. It's just one yeah. of the most awkward. 
He's got yeah, this that... tiny little wolf head just sort of cuddled up next to him. And it's very <laughs> it's very squared off and I mean there's movement in the drawing, the trees are at an angle and J. Jonah Jameson's you know, the the idea is there, but it just doesn't come together. She looks like a bag lady in the background now that I'm looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of notes on this one. I, I, I like the issue. I enjoyed it. Um, really, the, the biggest note I've got on this is that for a change, the teaser at the end, uh, yeah, he ain't kidding, because the, the teaser at the end says, next issue, solace and flight. It's a departure, we guarantee it. It sure was, because I don't know if you remember, Paul, we covered that issue on the show quite some time ago. The next issue is the one that starts out where the man wolf's about to be hit by a train. And oh, yeah. it's not until about nine tenths through the issue that it's even explained how the hell we got to that point. It almost skips this whole thing. It, it pays lip service to the fact that John was arrested for being AWOL, but then it does like this jump ahead, like basically. Uh, Stroud takes him to his apartment to get clothes, and John skips out of town. That so it it totally almost completely disregards the way this book ends to go in a completely just wriggles out of it. Yeah, and they end up going to the, like that that redneck mountain, you know, where it was like a James Bond villain hideout with the rednecks and the moonshine. And I remember. Yeah, I, I do know that, that you brought it up. I, I had totally blocked yeah. that out of my mind until you just brought it up. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it is a complete departure. But, you know, I, I like this almost for sentimental reasons. I mean, it's not that it's like a bad issue or anything. It's just the, the art's really kind of rough in this. Um, the story's serviceable and everything, but... Uh, I mean, he he only gets better from here, as, as I guess what <laughs> the kindest thing I can say about it. it it's a, it's a fun read, but uh, he he has better better adventures ahead of him. Now, just uh, before we go on further, I, I did neglect to describe the cover, uh, which I think actually I think it's really sharp. It kind of has the man wolf front and center, uh, and he's sideways, but he's kind of down on his knees. Uh, stand you know over the over the prone body of Christine, while Jonah is in the background aiming a shotgun at him, uh, and then you know the moon is silhouetted behind him, uh, and Jonah's saying, "I can't pull the trigger, I can't. Yet if I don't, Christine will die, and that monster that will kill her is my son." And I think it's a really really sharp cover. I wish the man wolf yeah. was drawn this way inside the book. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. you, his musculature is like he looks like and like a real animal. Like, yeah, it's it's really nice. And the red and background that, makes it pop too. That yeah. well, that's the thing is like this is another thing that just gets pushes all my buttons. It's of that time and like and I and I always gravitated towards more horror and supernatural comics and Marvel law like. All the DC horror comics and spooky comics were sort of like the blue and dark and, you know, dark browns and stuff. And uh, and the Marvel ones were like red and yellow, you know, just like. Yeah. And and 
it works. I mean, as soon as I see red and yellow and like silhouettes of trees, I think Marvel horror comic, you know, in the 70s. Yeah, and Marvel, you know, dove into the horror comics feet first as soon as uh, the Comics Code Authority would let them. Thank God. I, lo- I love Marvel horror comics. It's something that I've got a greater appreciation the from, for them as an older person than, than I did as a teenager. Yeah. As a teenager, I was definitely more, you know, just totally gravitating towards the superheroes. And, I, and as we've discussed in the past, I always go back to superheroes. But I have a true love of the Marvel horror books of the 70s now that well exceeds what I had back then. I, th- I think I only I think I only gra- gravitated to them because they were usually self-contained. They were usually more the anthology yeah. ones and stuff like that. And that, like you know, if I I knew if I bought one of those off the show, you know, when my parents were like, okay, you can pick out a comic book. If I bought one of those, I knew I wasn't going to get cliffhangered most likely, and I'd get like three or four stories in it, and. Uh, because superheroes were right in my wheelhouse of science fiction, fantasy, you know, all that. But, like, yeah, the horror ones got me. This is more sort of a, the, I mean, the comic inside is more of is more somewhere in between superhero and, and horror comic, you know. Maybe yeah. mostly because of the art in this one. It doesn't, it's not very dark. It's just sort of straightforward comic book of the time comment on that too that i don't know why it's it's funny i never i never really considered man wolf a horror title and i don't know why i it it, to me it was maybe it's because of him being an astronaut you know john jameson i mean you know in his secret identity or whatever i call you know his, his alter ego being the astronaut i almost took it more as I don't know. It's it's weird. It's almost like you know, if the six million dollar man, you know, was a werewolf instead of bionic type of thing, you know. So I, I always considered it more of not not exactly a superhero book, but more I don't, yeah. I don't know, closer to that genre. Yeah, it no, straddles that line focus. better, and it it presents itself more in yeah. that world. Uh, and I and I wonder if the fact that you know you you know that it goes into the outer space adventures, you know, gives it a little bit of a cosmic feel and keeps it from having that horror feel yeah. for you. They, they they don't like they 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 are more. Con- this is more concerned with all the confrontations and fights in it than like the existential horror of being a being a a man wolf and then like changing you know changing it. It's just. Like his transformation into a wolf isn't a dramatic scene. It's drawn fairly dramatically, but it just sort of happens. It's a sort of like, oh well, turn on the moon here. <laughs> we need. And you got to keep in that. mind too, though, at the what? same time this was coming out, they were also publishing Werewolf by Night, so you didn't want to be by having yeah. having two two uh, series that were presenting the exact same concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think part of it too, prob- probably a, a really big part of it, was that you know this is you know a, a tertiary Spider-Man book. You yeah, know, it's, it's spun off of Spider-Man. You know, you've got you know John uh, John Jameson's dad is J. Jonah Jameson, so it it feels in that Spider-Man family, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so, it's, yeah, it's, it's totally got spin off in it, and I'm sure yeah. Spider-Man showed up in in several issues. But even, even before, 
even before he became the Man-Wolf in Spider-Man 124, uh, John Jameson was somewhat of a supporting character in Spider-Man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, yeah. he was an existing Spider-Man character well before well, he became the Man-Wolf. Well, he was there from Wolf. the very, like, from in the early Ditko ones, wasn't he? I sort of remember Yeah. Remember yeah the that. whole, the original motivation for Jonah hating Spider-Man was that he felt that Spider-Man um, kind of showed up uh john uh there was a mission it's, it's like in one of the very yeah, he like saved him when he was saved him in. yeah yeah and, and jonah thought he was just a glory hog that stole you know stole his son's spotlight type of thing and that was the initial motivation for him to hate spider-man now, that would mutate later over the years but that was the initial starting point of the whole thing yeah, they weren't afraid to change things <laughs> in those days. <laughs> well, they had the one one issue where where he had a monologue where he talked about how he was jealous of Spider-Man. Jealous, yeah, yeah. I I, I just recently read all the like I have one of the uh, essentials uh, the, the essentials that have the black and white reprints in them of the the first issues of the Hulk, you know, the original mm-hmm. issues of the Hulk, and I was just like, oh my god, they had no idea they went. And, 84 different directions with everything in that at first before oh, they yeah. read, read the first few issues of Thor. He really, oh, he that, really had no yeah, idea. That. Yeah. That's all over the place. Yeah. All right. So we should rate this one. If we're going to try and squeeze in one more before we call it a night. Uh, all right. I'm going to say, I love the cover on this. I think it, it, it is borderline to make me want to go to that a plus level, but I'm just going to say a, uh, I think it is kind of, you know, it, I, I would easily hang this up on a wall, I, I, but I'm still going to just go straight A. The interior art is, uh, it's it's very inconsistent because there are a couple of panels that I really do like. Uh, and there's a couple of scenes where, where you can kind of feel the moodiness of it, as we discussed earlier. So there's, there's, there's glimpses of what could be here, but then we get Pinhead Man-Wolf and, and just some 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 wonky uh anatomy on a couple of them and then just to have george perez and klaus jansen do a full page poster image in mid book and have it be this pedestrian is so disappointing uh so honestly this is about as low as i think i would grade a george perez book and i'm going to give it a c minus but I, I can't imagine any George Perez book that I would rate lower than that, and I think 99.9% of them I'm rating much higher. Uh, story-wise, it's fairly compact. I mean, this is a 15-page 15 15 story, and I think it kind of gets the point across well enough, and it's it's entertaining to me. So I'm, I'm going to say it's okay. It's you know it's not great. It's not bad. I'm going to just give it slightly better than average and say a C plus on the story. And overall, based on the cover, really bringing it up a lot, I'm going to say a B minus for the book. Okay. Um, I, I also really like the cover on this one. This is one that uh, I could see like on a T-shirt or something would look really cool. Yeah. I mean, it pops. The colors, the man wolf just looks awesome because you know the the musculature, as you say, he's very defined. 
I like that he's he's you know rearing his head back and howling at the moon is how I take this cover and uh, you know Jonah quivering in the background that that shot there with Jonah with the gun and you know the little quiver lines around him reminds me so much of when uh, Aunt May had Spider-Man cornered in that one issue where where Spider-Man's like beaten I think he's beaten the shit out of Doc Ock. And Aunt May is like holding the gun on Spider-Man, like "Don't make me kill you" or "Don't make me shoot you." That it just reminds me of that, and so it's classic in that sense. And uh, yeah, I just think it's a great cover. I'm going to say an A, uh, an A, a straight up A on the cover. Um, interior art, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, it's it's so hard to be down on these guys, and but you know you can't be too harsh, only in the aspect of you know this is Perez just getting started, um, and there are hints of the greatness to come i mean there are little glimpses here and there uh page two the next to last panel of uh stroud with his fists all balled up that's logan you know that that's like a, a you know a glimpse ahead of of you know the the work that they would do on logan's run and there's other little bits and pieces there but overall yeah it's it's very rough it's uh it's rather amateurish but you know he's just getting started um I think honestly, I, I think I'd give it a C plus in the sense that you know we would see so much better from them later. But this is definitely a jump up from the Tusca issues, and that that's the reason I'm going to say it's above average. <laughs> that's setting the bar really low. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I mean those Tusca issues are just really, I mean they're just not my thing. You know, it's just it's they're just not appealing to me visually where this is much more appealing. I honestly, I think the biggest issue I've got with this um, besides again, you know, the, the overall amateurish look to it is the coloring, the coloring, just who was the colorist on this Petra Goldbeyond. She's just not doing the art any favors with the weird. I mean, some of these color choices are really weird. A lot of purple. Yeah. The first page has just so many, bright colors uh it's weird yeah a lot of pink a lot of purple um i don't know if she was going for a mood but it just doesn't work in a lot of this um with the colors there's so much purple through the book it's flipping back through it It, it's just kind of bizarre um rather than create a a weird or, or misty mood it just looks bizarre um, so yeah, I'm not crazy about the coloring. So anyway, uh, as I said, I think I'm going to go C plus on the R and then the story. I mean, the story's good. It's serviceable. Um, it does some interesting things. I like that it resolves the whole thing with, uh, with Craven who, you know, it, it's hard for me to say loving things about Craven cause I've always considered him one of the shittest characters in comics, but <laughs> he puts in a pretty good showing between the last, you know, the prior issue and this issue, you know, he's used a good effect. So you know, bonus points to uh, to craft. You know, for making me, you know, find Craven interesting for a change. Um, and you know, it it has you know it has a pretty good story overall. So I'm gonna go. Uh, I think I'll go a. Uh, I'll do a C minus on the story as well. Overall grade for the issue. Um, I think I'll go a C plus for the overall issue. I, I I enjoyed it. It's a good one, and it just gets better from here. All right. I'm going for an A on the cover, too. Um, The story, 
would have probably been a, is 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 serviceable and and good and moves along. Um, I probably would have given it a B. I'm giving it a B plus because they threw in an R on page 17 and <laughs> a reference to the furry, fabulous furry freak brothers, which are comics I enjoy. So they get a, get knocked up to a B plus in story for throwing furry freak brothers and R's in there. Um, the art is is getting a B plus, but that's mostly because the wonkiness just works into my nostalgia for this time period and that that Klaus Jansen look and just the whole feel of the comic. So so it's just just a shave under an A. I would give the whole the whole comic a B. But just on another note, just on a quick note. Um, I love the backup story in this. Short and sweet, I would give the art and story both A's on that. <laughs> it was uh it was good. That story it, was from I believe in like nineteen fifty three. Yeah, some one of the old like yeah one of the old horror comics. And uh but yeah, the art's it's beautiful. It's just a good quick little gag and the, the art is fluffy and fun. And I like it. Cool. Okay. All right. We good for one last? Yeah, let's move it along. All right. I'm looking forward to this one because... Uh, All right. I'm... We just ran out of time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For this one, we are jumping ahead to June of uh, 1986 for DC Comics Legion of Superheroes, Volume 3. Oh, my God. This is when we were graduating. This yep. Graduation month. Sure was. Uh, this one was on sale March 13th of 1986, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. My sister's cover, birthday. Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> Not cover on this cares. by uh, Steve Lytle. Um, I'll talk more about the cover on this later on. Uh, the writer on this issue is Paul Levitz kind of the definitive uh, Legion writer, in my opinion. Plotter slash penciler, Steve Lytle, uh, also listed as penciler, is Greg LaRock. And I actually see a lot more Greg LaRock throughout this whole issue than I do see of, uh, of Steve Lytle. And inked by Mike DiCarlo. Letterer is John Costanza, colorist Carl Gafford, and editor Karen Berger, who, if my memory serves, is the was the future ex- Mrs. Carl Kessel, I'm pretty sure. Um, the title on this one is simply Back Home in Hell. All right, so strap in for this one, folks. It's a good one. So on the planet Earth in the 30th century, various members of the Legion of Superheroes are jolted from their daily routines as an agonized scream rips through their headquarters. The building is then rocked by a concussion that threatens to bring the entire structure down. Shadowlass runs into the med lab, which is now a smoking, burning, broken shambles, and pleads with her boyfriend, Monel, to stop his destructive rampage as he's destroying the whole building. Monel tells her that he's just learned that the anti lead poisoning serum that Brainiac 5 developed to free him from his tormented exile in the Phantom Zone is no longer working. After 1,000 years, the pain is back. As other Legionnaires rush in to find out what's up, Brainiac 5 tells the group that Monel has become immune to his serum and that he is dying. 
Shadowlass demands someone fetch the Phantom Zone projector, but this sets off Monel again, declaring that he'd rather die than spend another lifetime in the zone. Monel smashes his way out of the Legion headquarters and heads for space. But in his weakened condition, he simply plows into the protective polymer screen surrounding the planet and bounces off, stunned, where he is rescued by Dawnstar. We are treated to some intriguing espionage antics involving uh, Shrinking Violet and uh, Lightning Lass on the planet Rimbor, which is a nice callback. Uh, then back to Legion headquarters, where Sunboy is supervising repairs. Alone, disembodied, and unseen and unheard, Monel roams the halls in phantom form, including looking in on the distraught Shadow Lass. He makes his way back to the med lab where Element Lad and Brainiac 5 are desperately trying to communicate with him through their Phantom Zone viewer. And we get some nice insight into the workings of the zone and how the real world and the zone interact with each other. Monel moves into range and tells Brainiac 5 flat out that he should not have sent him back into the zone. Monel doesn't want to live if he's only a phantom. Brainiac 5 promises to restore Monel pointing out that he'd done it before and that he already knew that the serum was failing. It's only a matter of time to which Monel points out that he waited a thousand years the first time, saw people grow old and die, even entire worlds, and were treated to some nice visuals as he speaks, including Dark Side presumably subjugating a world. Monel states that he wants a clean death, not this ghostly torture again. With that, he tries to pull an Apollo from uh, Who Mourns from uh, Adonais from uh, classic Star Trek and seemingly expands to enormous proportions, all while willing himself to die, die, die. And then we get a, a quick cut to a one-page interlude with Cosmic Boy and his main squeeze, Night Girl, borrowing a time bubble from the Time Institute to go on vacation in the 20th century, which, if memory serves, I think this whole thing plays out in the four-issue Legends crossover miniseries called Cosmic Boy. And I mention this only because I find it absolutely stunning that there's no footnote about that at all. So maybe I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. Anyway, a moment later, uh, Dawnstar... Shadow Lass and Element Lad rush in, demanding to also borrow a time bubble to head back to Superboy's time in a desperate but as yet unclear attempt to save Monel. They are warned that uh, time travel has become difficult and that the time storms are worse than ever. Element Lad is already aware of this, and that's why uh, they couldn't simply call Superboy across the centuries as they ordinarily do. Back at Legion headquarters, Phantom Girl and Telus journey into the Phantom Zone where the weird alien aquatic legionnaire uses his telepathy to navigate and quote unquote swim through the zone in an attempt to find Monel. Meanwhile, well, sort of, Shadow Lass, Element Lad, and uh, who the hell was the other one? Dawnstar are treated to a uh, rocky ride through the time barrier uh, where they comment on how different the experience is now from their previous time jaunts. But they do eventually make it to the 20th century Smallville, home of Superboy. 
quick cut to Shrinking Violet and uh, Lightning Lass, and whether intentional or not, I don't know, but we're treated to some interesting foreshadowing of their eventual romantic relationship together. Back in Smallville, the Legionnaires find the secret underground passage to the Kent home and are greeted by Superboy as they emerge in his secret cellar lab. Shadowlass tells him that they need him desperately. In the Phantom Zone, Monel searches in vain for peace and solitude within the zone. Even a phantom can dissolve, he says, spread apart into so many atoms like a mist. Where do I do that? How do I do that? But as he tries, he is met by a phantom girl and Tellus, who at first try to reason with him, but eventually are forced to just simply capture him via Tellus's telekinesis. In the Time Barrier... The time-traveling Legionnaires plus Superboy race back to the 30th century, but the storms are worse than ever. Superboy comments that he's never seen the time stream like this. The trip grows so rough that they are actually bumped out of the time stream and into the year 2050 AD, where they are observed by Jonah Hex? Yep, Jonah Hex. That's Jonah. why I was like, aha, that's why Scott Gardner's <laughs> picked this one. Same thing that, well, I, that crossed my mind. For several reasons, I picked this one, but that's definitely a big one. Now, Jonah, if you're wondering, why, why the hell's Jonah Hex in this? And why is he in the year 2050? So Jonah, during this time, had been plucked out of his native, uh, native 19th century by one Reinhold Bornstein, an unscrupulous scientist who collected historical figures. Hex had managed to escape the scientist only to find himself lost in the post-apocalyptic ruins of the mid-21st century. Think Mad Max. Anyway, Superboy decides that they should not wait around to see if Hex is hostile or not and nudges the bubble back into the time stream, commenting that maybe the time barrier is getting too tough for machines, but it's still no match for a Superboy. And poor Jonah Hex is left thinking that he must be getting touched in the head as he watches them vanish into a hole in the sky. Uh, eventually, back in Brainiac 5's lab, Superboy emerges from the time stream with the bubble in hand, just as Phantom Girl arrives to fire the Phantom Zone projector and bring Telus and Monel back into the real world. Using a revised treatment of his serum, which now uses Superboy's blood irradiated with kryptonite, Brainiac 5 injects Monel. If I'm right, he says, the K cells will negate the lead poisoning permanently. And if you're wrong, asks Shadowlass, then Monel will have his wish and he'll die. Seems kind of harsh. Cut to the last page and several days later as a restored Monel and his lady friend Shadowlass stand outside and watch the sun together. The end. Now, I picked this story for several reasons. Um, the main one being that, uh, as you guys may have noticed if you if you follow me on Facebook, I am uh, doing a, a read-through of Jonah Hex. And as I was putting everything together and arranging comics and everything, and, you know, I, I love being able to read comics digitally these days because you can make these great reading lists where you just, you know, arrange everything just so. And I'm going through this list of Jonah Hex appearances in chronological order, and I, I just happened upon... Legion of Superheroes 23, and I thought, wait, what? And then I remembered, oh, yeah, that's right. Um, Jonah not only pops up here, 
But as the footnote in the issue says, you get to see Jonah's perspective of this very same encounter in Hex number 10, which was an issue when when Jonah was trapped in the future. So we do in that issue. You actually see you know, you get the whole story from Jonah's perspective as he sees Superboy in the time bubble pop out and then, you know, very briefly and then pop back in. So I just thought that was kind of fun. But. It's so cool to me, however briefly, and they don't really meet or interact, but here you've got three of my all-time favorite comic book characters all, you know, briefly interacting in the same issue. you got Jonah Hex, you got Mon-El, who are two of my favorite obscure comic book characters, and then you got Superboy, who is, you know, right up there is probably, like, my one of my top three comic book characters of all time. So that was really the, the big reason why I wanted to dig this one back out and read it again, and... Uh, and I think it holds up. I think it's a really great issue. So now, Which, is it wrong that any time I read anything with Jonah Hex, uh, I always hear his dialogue in Yosemite Sam's voice? <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think it's necessarily wrong. That's not. That's not the voice in my head for him. But it's interesting that uh, something I, I just got a hold of in digital form recently. I haven't had a chance to read it, although I heavily thumbed through it. Did you know that there was a Jonah Hex Yosemite Sam crossover not long ago? No, I did not. But it I would be interested like, in seeing it. It sounds ridiculous, and I thought, oh, please, don't don't water down my Jonah with a, with a stupid crossover with a cartoon character. But it looks really good. because now, it's got they portray two... him as Yosemite Sam, or is he like a, a real-life version of Sim- it's Yosemite It's funny you Sam. should ask that, because there's two stories in the book, and the first one, Yosemite Sam, and get this, Foghorn Leghorn oh, are, are not cartoony. They're drawn real world, but it's funny because Foghorn Leghorn still has a giant rooster head. I don't know how you can draw Foghorn Leghorn real worldly. Yeah, this is a chicken. (laughs) Yeah, and it looks really good. Like I say, I haven't read it, so I don't know what the explanation is, but it it looks really good because the art's very nice. And then the second story, um, it's basically cartoon Jonah in a Warner Brothers cartoon with the other characters. And that That one looks sounds like a riot. Yeah, it looks that one looks interesting as well. So when I eventually get around to it and read it, I'll I'll do a report on that and let you know, you know, what I thought of it. But uh, what what did you guys think of this issue? Well, I'll go first since I'm the like babe. Like this one was like just tossing a babe into the woods. (laughs) I, I. I, what I know about Monel is what I picked up in this episode and from hearing about you, like or hearing about him from you, you know, in high school, middle school. So I, I had to like, um, I got to say, for me not knowing anything about anything to do with this or any of the side stories or anything that's going on and in, in a million zillion characters with all different powers and everything. For all that and having no idea what the hell's going on, it the the poor writer, you know, having and and, and the writer, God bless him, knew, like you were saying earlier, knew that a lot of people might be jumping on in this issue, <laughs> and so right. many things are happening with so many people, and he keeps it. He, I mean, he has to employ exposition. 
but he does it well. He does it he does it perfectly and just enough to that I knew what was going on all the way through the story, you know, generally. You know, I knew that there were references to other stories that I wasn't going to get, but I also knew that they would really not be a big effect on the the main thrust of the storyline. So, I mean, it it held together very very well for me and was very a very enjoyable read in general. Oh, good. Paul? So now, for me, um, now I thought the art in it was good, but I didn't quite like it as much as what I thought it was trying to emulate, which is the Keith Giffen uh, Legion stories. I, I enjoyed, you know, like I, it felt to me like it was kind of a lighter version of that. And by lighter, I don't mean, uh, you know, more joking. I just mean not quite up to the same level. Uh, but I still thought it was good, the artwork. The story, I agree with what Chris said, but I think I might have just been quite not quite in the right frame of mind when I read it because it just seemed a little too depressing and schmaltzy for me. <laughs> just the tone of the story was like, it felt like such a downer until the end that I, I you know, I... I I, I think my, you know, my favorite part was just the quick little uh, interlude with Jonah Hex. I, I really appreciated that, and you know, I did know, you know, which era of Jonah Hex it was crossing over with. That was not a, you know, that didn't create any sort of logistical problem for me. Uh, but you know, and I know that there's been this whole, you know, storyline of Monel with the, the lead and all, you know, all of that. But it was, it felt to me like once it was resolved. I didn't want them to go back to it again. So I got you. Although I think it's well done. Like I said, I think it just caught me in the wrong mood because I do like the uh, the way the way Monel is just like I don't care. I'm not going back there. I would rather die than go back there. And I think you know the emotion of all of that is is well played in it. It just wasn't what I felt like reading at the moment. I'm glad they addressed the. That um, to Brainiac, that maybe they he shouldn't have said, you know, because that's what I thought this was going to be a whole story about, you know, hey, listen, he says he doesn't want to go back in the Phantom Zone. We can't just put somebody in the Phantom Zone against, you know, our friend in the Phantom Zone against their will, especially with their history of it. You know, they know what the Phantom Zone's like. And, uh, but they didn't. I mean, there's so much story going on that it just sort of like zipped through it. But I'm glad they addressed it. You know, maybe it might have been a little unethical to do that. Yeah, well, it, made, it didn't it turn it, into a whole whose life is this anyway. Than, that, that this, I, right. always, I always pictured the the Phantom Zone as really healthy. You know, not hellish like burning flames, but hellish just in like you know you're in this place that's just awful to be awful to be in, and it was almost more like Marvel style where they're just like, hey, we're floating around in this. This is kind of cool. Hey, look, we can look into different times and stuff. And it had, or or or, or not even Marvel, like more like the um, something Alan Moore would have written in Swamp Thing, you know, where we're in this the side dimension or something but the phantom zone has always just had this reputation as being like the worst place you would want to go 
I just pictured Charlie X. I don't want to go back there. They're boring. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that kind of, like it was just, just like a, a deathly existence to be there. Yeah, and I mean, what, what what does that do to your mind to be someplace for a thousand years? You know, nobody can even really conceive of what it's like to live for a thousand years, much less be like in limbo for a thousand years. That's why I, I love this story, and I, I'm I'm a little thrown by by Paul's reaction because I find it interesting because to me, they could have drugged this story out more. Now, I mean, I wouldn't want them to overdo it. Don't get me wrong, but I don't. Now, I, 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 you know, full confession, I have not read every Legion of Superheroes story that's out there. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a big Legion fan, but there's a whole wide swath of Legion that I've never read yet, um, including a lot of issues like from this run. But I don't recall a time where Monel, even when he was in the zone, you know, during Superboy and Superman's lifetime, I don't remember Monel ever lamenting his situation greatly. I mean, to where he really seemed upset or, or um, you know, he was never vindictive or anything like that. You know, he was ne- he never held a grudge seemingly against you know Superboy, for example, for putting him there. And that's part of my fascination with this particular issue is it's finally addressing something that I I thought was kind of overdue to be addressed, which was what had it done to him? What effect had it had on him? And we're finally seeing this here because Monel, one of the reasons he's a fascinating character to me is that he is a good guy. He's he's almost I mean, he's almost a goody goody. He was almost like a little too perfect. And here we're getting a little chink in the armor. We're seeing that that it wasn't just a thing of, well, you know, I did my time, I'm out, and and I'm a member of the Legion, and, and it doesn't bother me at all. We're seeing that, no, this had deep a deep psychological impact on him to where the very thought, the very mention of having to go back into the zone, even temporarily, completely sets him off. And and I like that. I, I thought it created some real drama and, and some much-needed um, personality input for this character. Um, Cause while I, I've always really liked the character, I've always been kind of fascinated by him. He was kind of Superboy light in a lot of ways and didn't really have all that much of a distinctive personality of his, of his own other than, you know, he was a powerful member. Unlike Superboy, he was there all the time and he had shadow ass as a girlfriend. Other than that, he didn't have a whole lot of personality and this gives him something, you know, and I, and I like that. And this becomes kind of a thing that plays out with him for the rest of his time, you know, until the big, you know, continuity rewrite and everything. So I just found it interesting that it was finally addressed, you know, even if it was sadly just this one issue of, of what effect had it had on him. And I, I honestly, I, this could have played out for several issues for me. I'd have been really happy with it, but I like, you know, how it did play out over the course of, of this issue. At least we got something with that. I, I I got as an outsider, I got the impression that it was like this was not a, like this was not to be taken as the characterization of the I, I got the uh, feel that we were seeing Monel, who was like, you know, his treatment had reached the point where that, you know, he was in constant constant pain and since he's sort of a super powered guy his pain was probably super intense 
and it was just driving him crazy. And then when, you know, insane with the pain, and then when the mention of the Phantom Zone comes out, it's like, I'm in excruciating pain, and now you want to send me into a limbo of a thousand years of excruciating pain, just leave me, you know, he was a wounded animal, basically, at that point. Right. And just trying to, like, get away from everybody. And maybe that's part of what just didn't sit right with me, and I understand everything you said, Scott, and everything you said makes sense, but I've always seen Monel as kind of a character that was above it all. Uh, and I don't mean above it all right. like, you know, like snooty. I mean, like, better than everybody else, almost. Right. Uh, and then for him to become, you know, almost whiny when I felt like I was reading it. And I know he's not, but that's, like I said, maybe I just caught it at the wrong time. But... I don't know. I, I, I didn't. I don't like seeing that character kind of brought down to his knees, which is what it felt like to me. I can see that. Yeah. No. I can. I can totally see that because, yeah, you're taking this this guy that in some ways was even more of a paragon than than Superman in, in some ways, and and not only humanizing him, but as you say, bringing him you know bringing him to his lowest point. I, I can see that where that could be a, you know an unpleasant experience. It, uh, you know, for someone, yeah, I can. Easily it might have played that. dramatically better if, like you said, Scott, they did it over three issues. You I know, think maybe, so, maybe that yeah. would have been better. I think maybe you have a build-up where the pain just keeps right. increasing and increasing, and he's having these flashbacks to what it was like in the Phantom Zone, and you slowly just keep building it and building it and building it, and then you get to the point where they say, "We need to send you back there." Right. And now, now you you kind of like. Have have reached a point where it's like I totally understand what he's going through, mm-hmm. right? And I I can totally agree with that because you know full confession I love this issue I really do, but if I have any qualm with it is that it's very rushed. I I feel like you know there's like, a lot of stuff happening. It's a lot of stuff happening. You know I mean I skipped over a lot of the subplots and and non Monel things that are in this issue. You know and there's a lot of that. Um so I I felt like it it did kind of rush through a story that you know uh, that I feel like could have been played out more to a degree where um the only real disappointment for me is at you know the way it ends i mean it, it it literally just jumps to an ending um you know they don't even there's not even really any tension you know in the part where uh brainiac five says basically you know he'll he'll live or he'll die and once he administers the serum and then you turn the page and it's oh several days later and monel's okay the end he'll so live. It, it, it is a <laughs> it is a weak ending to an otherwise really good story. And I think uh, again, you know, if they had spread this out over several issues, you know, maybe you see Monel starting to weaken and he's wondering, you know, what's happening to my powers. And then he, he goes from being weak to actually being in pain. And that's why he goes to Brainiac and Brainiac has to confess. I, I know exactly what's happening to you. And I've been trying to work on this, but unfortunately the serum's failing and, I'm sorry, dude, but, you know, if it gets much worse for you, we're going to have to put you back in the zone until I figure that, you know, yeah. play that out over several issues and really set Monel off. Um, Even in this issue, they sort of, uh, there's sort of a bit of time spent with several groups of characters traveling from one place to another that could have been 
condensed down, you know, right. that could and and then that time could have been spent on some dialogue and some, you know, character work on uh on Monel there, right. but there's a, there's a lot of just sort of like we have to go and do this and do this. I mean, I I complain a lot about the what is it they call it, the decompressed storylines nowadays and how much yeah. they used to fit in an oh, issue. We complain about it all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. They could they that they, they, this is actually an example of like I mean, I'm amazed not knowing anything about most of the the majority, the vast majority of these characters how I could follow the story. But it wasn't like an emotionally engaging story for me, but it was an efficient story, but a lot right. ha- you know, a less could have happened in this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I'm fond of saying that if you podcast enough, you know, you experience enough that it'll make a liar out of you. And uh, I'm, I'm always saying I'm a big advocate for the less decompressed storyline. So every time we come across an issue where I start calling for a more uh, decompressed story, I feel like it's somehow making me into a hypocrite. But That's I, okay. I, this is a place to be, like... Art critique, you're gonna be a you gotta be a hypocrite. It's not about re, it's not about objective reality. But I, I think we the can, reality of it is, and we can lie. I think the reality of it is, I am a bigger fan of the more compressed stories. But there is not a hard and fast rule that right. applies to every single story. And some oh, stories are worthy of being decompressed, and some stories are not. Yeah. Right. This this definitely is a, could have been decompressed a lot more, and it's interesting enough to be decompressed and to go into. There's a lot of things that could have been gone into deeper over three issues with this. And I, I have to say, I enjoy one of the things I enjoy about doing shows like this is where I read something, I think something, and then after we discuss it, I start thinking of it differently. And this is a book that would fit that bill. Because as I said, I read it and I just felt it was too maudlin and down and I didn't enjoy it as much as I could have. And then the more we're discussing it, the more I'm saying, yeah, I probably didn't give this as much of a chance as I should have. I probably went through it a little too quickly. And, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm appreciating it more as we're getting into some more of the more finer points in it. A few quick notes on this, because I know we're running very long for this episode. Um, I just as I as I read the issue and was turning pages and and more and more characters come in and everything I just I had two real big thoughts was that for one I, it just reinvigorated my love of the Legion I, I love the Legion um, it occurs to me we haven't really covered a whole lot of Legion stuff on Back to the Bins and maybe I should inject more in from time to time because I really do love these guys so this was like visiting old friends. One of the things I always really liked about the the Legion had to be the thing that I would imagine would be the the toughest thing of the assignment for the writer and artist, it, which is the vast cast that, that Chris commented on. There's a shitload of Legionnaires. I mean, people talk about the X-Men and there X-Men to keep up with. They ain't got nothing on the Legion. I mean, there's so many Legionnaires and then there's the characters and the substitute legionnaires and all that and and it is a lot to keep up with but that for me was a lot of the fun of the legion 
And uh, I, I've always got to give big props to, uh, you know, the guys that really handled it well. And I, I think the best one of all is the writer of this issue, Paul Levitz. He was just a master of juggling all these balls yeah. at once and really keeping, you know, all the subplots moving forward, keeping everybody straight, you know, where everybody was, who was dating who. And, uh, I mean, it, it couldn't have been easy. But I think he oh. did a really good job of it. I, it has a is this weird, but to me it has a sort of a Star Trek: The Next Generation vibe to it. So, no, I can see that in in the way that it had such a large, you know, cast of functioning characters. Yeah, no, I I can definitely see that because I I think one of the things that that Levitz really did masterfully was, despite there being a massive cast. Everybody gets a moment, you know, and I think what he was really clever at doing was while it is a huge cast, he he never had or rarely, I should say, had everybody on the table at once. It was like he'd have a big old chunk of the Legion on the table at once, but not everybody. So it's manageable. So, you know, you've got here in this issue, there's probably a good dozen, dozen and a half Legionnaires that we're keeping track of, which is a lot of characters, but everybody gets a little moment, and, and I like that. That's that's a really tough, you know, a tough uh, magic act to perform, but he, he does it really well. Um, I mean, I think the only downside of it, though, is that, as you say, because you're juggling so many characters and, and so much story and where everybody is that... Um, the the A story, the Monel story, does have to kind of rush a bit through through its story. So rather than being decompressed, it's super compressed, um, almost to its detriment. I think because you know, as we said, I, I, I definitely think this was a was a story that could have benefited from having you know a couple issues. Um, let's see what else. I, I couldn't help but note on page one second panel when uh, Timberwolf's attention is drawn by Monel's scream that he upsets his uh, his lunch and he's got a Playboy cup. Would Playboy even still be a thing in the 30th century? It's barely a thing here in the in the early 20 you know 21st century. So I don't know if this is an antique mug or something that a uh, Superboy got for him or what, but I just thought that was funny. <laughs> you got a uh, Sunboy, who uh, who was always one of my favorite Legionnaires, he looks absolutely ridiculous with a mullet there on. Uh, well, the pages aren't numbered, so I don't know what what page that is. But as he's supervising the repairs, I just couldn't help but notice his perm mullet thing that he's got. He looks really funny. Um, love the art though on the right hand side of that page where we don't see Monel get put back into the zone, which I thought was kind of a weird story choice that, you know, we see him rescued by Dawnstar and then there's that little interlude. And then when we uh, get back to the Monel story, he's already a phantom again. He's been put back in the zone against his will. And the way this, this uh, page is laid out, the kind of grid pattern, it's completely wordless. There's no sound effects or anything. We just see, Phantom Monel roaming the halls of the Legion headquarters, you know, unseen and unheard. That there's something really cool and very creepy about that. It, it really gives some. It was like the ghost Kirk in a spacesuit. 
Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is. It's it's eerie. Yeah, and I could almost hear that that music from like Tholian Web. Yeah, that's very much so. And I've I've long been fascinated by the Phantom Zone as as anybody who's heard my Phantom Zone episodes of of my Superman show, you know. I, I I love the Phantom Zone, and I love when we get little glimpses into how how exactly does it work? Because that's the thing I think that's always fascinating me the most most about it is there's not been a whole lot of stories that clearly define like how exactly does it work? And here we get some definite uh, glimpses into that. You know the fact that you know you've got Brainiac Five trying to talk to Monel in the Zone, but because Monel's not in the proper section of the zone, he can't, he can't contact, he can't find him. I, th- I think that's neat. And I like when Phantom's, uh, Phantom Girl and uh, Telus are in the zone and she's showing him how there's like little windows in the mist where you can see into the real world and stuff. So it's, it's cool that you, I like his reaction how- to the Phantom zone too is yeah. really nice in this. Yeah, he's a character I'm not terribly familiar with, and I don't remember a whole lot of stories with him where he was used to great effect. But he's cool in this. Atelus, I mean, you know, the fact that, you know, he can kind of swim through the zone. And initially, I had a real problem with him being able to capture Monel because I thought it had been well established that the Phantoms can't touch or harm each other. So while while Monel spent a thousand years in the zone with all these, you know, nasty criminals, you know, the the worst Kryptonians that that were, they they couldn't actually hurt him. They could just taunt him and stuff, but they couldn't like gang up and kick his ass or anything. So it, it bothered me initially that Telus was able to actually physically interact with Monel, but I like that uh, I'm presuming this was Levitt's really thinking the whole thing out that because anybody that goes into the zone automatically gets telepathy because that's how they communicate that because Telus was already a telepathic and telekinetic being that his telekinesis actually still worked in the zone. I, I can buy that. I, I can go along with that. So works for this story. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what else? Oh, so big note here. What's going on with the time stream. So, the reason that the, they were having such a hard time with the time stream and the time bubble and, you know, there was all this uh, turbulence coming and going and everything was that DC was starting to put the clamp down on time travel because just a couple of months prior to this issue, the crisis on infinite earths had just ended. And then within a couple of months of this issue, you know, still in the future yet, was issue one of John Byrne's Man of Steel, which would completely rewrite Superman and a huge section of uh, DC's history. It would totally wipe Superboy out of existence. And so where does that leave the Legion who is founded on Superboy? And so their history is being rewritten as they speak. So that's what's going on is the, you know, the time stream's a mess because history is actually reordering himself right at this moment. And I thought that was cool that we're seeing that turbulence, you know, playing out in this issue and, and where that would eventually go. Uh, I think it's also interesting to, to note that, you know, it, it's, 
fortuitous, I guess, that this story happens when it happens because 15 months from now, this cure wouldn't be possible for Monel because Superboy not only would die uh, in like uh, like a year and a half from now, but then shortly after that, DC would put down a mandate that he would no longer be referenced and he definitely wouldn't be used anymore. And eventually he would even be completely wiped from the slate. So this whole thing with uh, with the lead poisoning and, and the Phantom Zone and all that just kind of slowly fades from Monel's backstory uh, until eventually when everything gets uh, gets rebooted and rewritten anyway, and the whole history of the Legion <laughs> changes. So yeah, this was an interesting time for the Legion because everything's in flux with this. So it's you know it's that's another reason i really like this story because we're we're getting a story i always wanted to get with monel and we're getting it basically just in time because all this shit's about to completely change and and go all topsy-turvy and uh i i'm one of those ones you know one of those legion fans that contends that uh you know, while there, there's good stories and good story arcs to come, the Legion never really recovers from losing Superboy. So th- this is like the last of the golden era of the Legion for me. And for that reason, um, I, I really I really give this uh, this issue a lot of props and probably love it more than maybe it actually deserves on its own merits. But I think it's a great issue. So. I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and jump to grades here. So uh, really my only uh, my only big negative for this issue is the cover. I think the cover sucks. I've never been the biggest Steve Lytle fan to begin with, and this cover is just ugly and bizarre. So basically you've got Angry Eyes mon popping out of one of those giant heads from the time travel sequence of Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. <laughs> While the Briar Patch is going nuts and strangling the other Legionnaires. Now, what the hell this Briar Patch has to do with this story, I, I couldn't tell you. I, it's just a bizarre cover that I've never, ever liked. Now, this story was reprinted. You have to remember, this was a, uh, what do they call it, a direct book. I think Legion was one of the DC's first direct sales only books. It if was. I it was. Um, Along with but, uh, the Titans. Titans, that's right. So what DC did was there was a several-month lag between when these issues came out new, the deluxe series, uh, direct sales ser- series, I mean, and when the reprint book came out. But eventually these stories would get reprinted in a, in a book called Tales of the Legion of Superheroes. So this issue is reprinted in Tales of the Legion of Superheroes. Um, shit, I lost my note on this. I had it here somewhere. Um 348, number 348, with a much better cover uh, by Ron Friends and Dick Giordano of Monel in the Zone. Um, so I, I like that that cover a whole hell of a lot more than I like this one. Um, so anyway, cover. I'm gonna give the cover a. Ugh. <laughs> I think I'm that's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give it a D, because I really don't like it. I think it's a very ugly cover. I really do. Um, Interior art, um, I actually really like the art in this book. Um, Greg LaRocque is not one of those artists that that comes to my mind very often, but I dig his stuff. And while he's 
credited much smaller in the credits than Steve Lytle is as the, the guest penciler and co-plotter. I see a hell of a lot more Greg LaRock in this artwork than I see Steve Lytle in here. And, and I like Greg LaRock's stuff a lot. Mike DiCarlo, I'm really not that keen on as an inker, but there's something about his Legion stuff that, that does work for me that I really like. And I like that there's a there's still a, a good bit of the aping of the Keith Giffen style on this because Legion for a time was a that was a superstar book right up there almost right up there with like um, Teen Titans and, and Uncanny X Men I mean it, this was one of those quintessential books of the 80s for a time and this is kind of like at the tail end of that, still kind of riding the, the coattails of, of the hype of the prior issues, like the Great Darkness Saga with Darkseid and all that. But I see a lot of the remnants of, of that established art style in this. So I, I dig it. It's very familiar and comfortable with it. And it, it's clean, and I really like it. And I, I like the Legion having a clean style, not that murky, muddy shit that would come along in a couple of years when, when Keith Giffen came back and brought that weird art style with him. Um, so art wise on this, I think I'm going to go, I think I'm going to go a B plus on the art cause I really dig it. There's, there's not a lot of wonkiness in it and there's a, there's a hell of a lot of it that I really like. I think Monel looks fantastic. Uh, so I really dig the art and then story wise, um, I'm going to go an A minus on the story. I really dig it. I, it, it gives me a lot of what I've always wanted from, you know, a, a Monel focused story. Uh, my only real qualm with it is uh, some of the the jumps in the narrative for time, I'm assuming, for page count, and then the unforgivable jump at the end where where all suspense and all tension is completely blown when you just turn the page and, okay, it's several days later and he's okay and he's going to be all right and end the book. It's such a rushed and disappointing ending. That's That's really the only story qualm i've uh, you know the major one that i've got with this otherwise i really dig it overall grade on this i'm gonna say uh i'm gonna say an a minus as an overall grade because i dig it i think it's i think it's a really solid book hmm. i'm incredibly close to you i gave the cover yeah, a but what'd you think of the book <laughs> close to you. Oh. yeah i gave it a c for the cover <clears throat> It's definitely an ugly cover. <laughs> just, it's just it's just a mess. It's just no sh- shapeless and ugly. Um, but art wise, I gave it an A. I I like this style of art. I have to sort of put a filter on my eyes because I hate back the look of Baxter paper, the solid color look of Baxter paper, and I have to sort of put that four color dot matrix in it to to see what I would think it would really look like in a in a newsprint comic. And I like it. I like I like that that thin line style and uh it just the dra- the draftsmanship of people in this is just very consistently good. And I and I and I enjoyed a lot of the more abstract stuff of them traveling through time in the in the Phantom I almost said Twilight Zone through the Phantom <laughs> Zone. So I gave the art an A. Um, I'm giving this story a B plus and it's only getting knocked down from an A because it is super compressed. But the fact that I was able to 
know what was going on all the way through this pretty much and follow the story is quite an achievement for the writer. So I gave the story a B plus overall, despite the cover, I'm giving it an A because I, I should have just, it should have been a, a comic like this should have been a slog for me. And it wasn't, it was an entertaining and, uh, and nice to look at read. Okay. Uh, I tend to agree with both of you on the cover. I think, I think it's drawn with a, a mentality of, hey, if you're on mind-altering substances, you're going to dig this. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the impression I got from it. Um, yeah, but it, that, that doesn't look like the happiest mind-altering. No, no, I didn't say it's happy. Experience. I didn't say it's happy. I, just, it's, it's, I think it's trying to go for that, that real surreal, weird, yeah. yellow submarine kind of feel. Stuff coming out of his eye. Yeah. There's, or, or Pink eye. Floyd the Wall, maybe. Yes, uh, yeah. Pink Floyd the Wall, for sure. Yeah. But at least Pink Floyd ha- had, like, art direction in it. This is just sort of just like this, like, puked-out image sort of yeah. thing. You know? I don't think this has any appeal to it that you'd see it and say, oh, I, I need to have this. Uh, so right. I'm going to say a C-minus on the cover. Now, in the chat, I shared the reprint cover, the Tales of the Legion cover. I- I'm curious what you guys think of that one. I'll take a look at that. And it's much better. Finish <laughs> yeah, talking that's about much this better. One. It's uh, got shape and design to it. Oh yeah, I like that. Uh, maybe maybe the 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 actual cover might like I'd like to see the art in black and white on that cover. It might look a little it might have a little more shape to it in black and white. Maybe. But the color yeah. is also very puke like on the cover. It's just sort of <laughs> You know, it's just sort of like, here's the, you know, nothing is drawing you from one place to another. It's just all sort of happening there at once, and it's angry. (laughs) It doesn't give you any real indication as to what you're going to see inside. No. Not a a quality poster image. I I think it really doesn't have very much going for it. I'll I'll stick with my C- on it. The interior art, as I said earlier, I think it's good. But I do think it's trying to go for the Keith Giffen style, and I don't think it does it quite as well. Uh, so I don't want to grade it in comparison. I just want to grade it on its own. And I'm going to say it's kind of a B- minus for me. Uh, you know, it's it's good. It's above average. I just, you know, I, I've seen artwork that I like better. Um, story-wise... I would I if we hadn't discussed it I would be ranking it lower but the discussion has kind of given me an appreciation for it uh, more so than I had uh, I still think that it would be much better served if this was just drawn out over about three issues uh, and really given a chance to to develop that that pathos that they're going for here uh, so. I'm going to say a B- minus on the story. I think it's solid. I think it could be just better presented. Uh, and overall, I'll give the book a B-. minus. Cool. Well, good. I'm glad you guys like this. I, especially especially Chris, because I, 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 I guess I was thinking that you had more of a familiarity with the Legion than, than maybe you do, just because Ooh. I was really into that when we were kids. And I, I guess I thought you picked some of it up. So I'm glad you were able to follow it because I always 
I like to think of of Levitz's Legion stuff as while it can be wordy and it can be convoluted as far as all the characters and plots and everything that it could still be followed. So it was nice to learn that at least with this one issue, you could still follow it despite, you know, just this massive cast. The wordiness was my, was my handhold really for like, (laughs) if you're, if you're all caught up with it, that wordiness could have been a detriment. But as I'm saying for somebody jumping in, you know, for like, basically a first time reader it, that was what got me through it so yeah it was uh, i mean it's just sort of an artifact of the of comic books where you almost had to do that if if you're going to put this much story <laughs> in now, one issue let me ask so. you does part of did did were you helped out at all by the fact that a, a lot of the names of the characters kind of give you what you need to understand yes yeah like phantom girl and sun boy and you know element lad it's the only way you're going to keep it all sorted out unless you unless you're like slowly picking up you know i mean you've had your whole life picking up these stories and processing them but otherwise yeah you need to have especially since a lot of them are pretty basically like just like human and cost you know humans and costumes maybe some of them are different color and stuff but it's you know there's some weird aliens around, but there's a lot of just like guys and gals and uh, young guys and gals. So it's it's best to keep as many shorthands as you can to figure out who they are. It never really occurred to me, you know, as a kid growing up reading this stuff. But that I, I can't help but think that that's gotta be why you know in the in the fifties and sixties when these stories and these characters were being created. Uh, why most of the Legionnaires just had simple names that define them, like you know, uh, you know the the ones where it was obvious, where their their power was in their name, like Invisible Kid or Chameleon Boy and that yep. sort of thing. And it's funny because later incarnations, um, you know, as we get closer to modern times, started to look at those as as being really corny and cheesy, so they started to change them. And I don't think. You know that it was as popular because I I kind of wonder if maybe that's why some of those other incarnations didn't do as well when they started to get fancier names for the characters and moved away from from simple names that defined who they were. Yeah, no. When you think about the the original three that they came out with, though, uh, you know, I guess they had no inclination that they were going to have such a wide and varied uh, roster. But only one of the three is kind of defined by his name because you had Cosmic Boy, Saturn Girl, and uh, Lightning Lad. And Lightning Lad's right. the only one who you have an inkling of his powers from his name. That's true. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just baked into the medium, and I wish people like like you know, it's like the difference between um, like a movie and like the stage play of the movie, you know, and the way like actors have to go on a play and out on a play and project, you know, the way an actor acts in a play would not really work most of the time in a movie because it's just totally a different thing. So, you know, people were like, oh, that's dumb that they name them those simple names, but it's sort of like a practical, (laughs) you know, just a practical, it's a practical thing that you kind of have to deal with to make it, to make it the mechanics of, of it, 
work better and it might be a little goofy it might be like like stage actors have to ham it up a little more but they have to do it to, to and you know when people are like oh that's stupid then you actually like end up sort of like throwing a monkey wrench into your into your thing by giving giving everybody just like you know my name's you know john john frank and you know blah blah, blah. and then you have to like piece together what they're Although I would love it if it was like, oh, chameleon boy, so you can change colors or change into different things, right? And he's like, no, nah, but my tail falls off. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I like chamomile. <laughs> Somebody spelled my application wrong, and now chamomile boy, it's chameleon boy. Not too happy about it. <laughs> I actually let off a nice uh, lilac-y odor. <laughs> actually, yeah, he wouldn't be too uh, upset about it because chamomile tea has that calming effect on him. So he's just always mellow. He's like, yeah, whatever, man. Chameleon <laughs> chamomile. It's all good, man. <laughs> all right. Are we out? I think we're, I think we're done. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Hey, everybody, what's up? Dr. Bill, in the house.